What's going on, OTL fam? We're back in the building with another Chop It episode with a couple special guests in the house all the way from Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma. Is that a city or state? Oklahoma is a state. What city in Oklahoma? Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa, Oklahoma. On the left, we have a previous guest, Mr. Benjamin Ford. And on the right, we have Mr. Joshua Knowles. Welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for having us here. Thank you. You know, we do what I can. We also have a third guest coming through on the phone as well. I actually just met him today through a phone call. And he said, you trying to hop in or nah? And he said, he needs 10 minutes if possible. So, <laughs> so we're just going to roll as is. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Glad to be here. Welcome to Seattle, Washington. Even gladder to be here. Welcome and welcome back. So you guys know a little bit about Mr. Benjamin. And since our last podcast, he is since moving to Seattle. That's like, true. Like the legend he is. And Joshua on the right. Yeah. We're trying I, to get to move to Seattle as well. Hey. I feel like I feel like Joe Rogan trying to get people to move to Texas. I don't think that Joe Rogan could get Joshua to lift a finger. Yeah. Let alone move. Joe Rogan doesn't do anything for me. Like he hasn't done anything to impact my life in any way, shape, or form. So he can have Texas. I'm good. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. I feel like Joe Rogan. Oh, you feel trying like Trying to get Rogan. you to move to Seattle the way oh, Joe Rogan yeah. tried to get people to move to Texas. See, I didn't even know Joe Rogan lived in Texas. As far as I'm concerned, he's either. still living on NBC. Fear Factor? Like Fear Factor, 7 mm-hmm. p.m. on Fridays mm-hmm. or whatever. Like, that's the Joe Rogan I know. I mean, we all know where it starts somewhere. I ain't mad at it. I love Fear Factor. So right. what, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Joshua, yes, who sir. are you? What are your verbs? What do you like to do? Give the people a little bit of background. I've never heard the question, what What are are your your verbs? verbs? And I like it. I like it. Um, I'm Joshua J. Knowles. My verbs are going, getting it done. Um, And yeah, right now I am getting my master's in social work, uh, specifically in administrative social work. So uh, the way I describe it, social work is just professionally being a problem solver on the behalf of the vulnerable. So that looks like advocacy. That looks like restructuring things so that underrepresented groups get represented. Um, And so, yeah, I'm living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, doing what I can to make things a little bit less like 2020 every day that I can. (laughs) So what is there to do in Tulsa, Oklahoma? Um, What what is there to do? Can I buy a bow? Oh, the gathering place is still the best park I've ever been to. Note, I haven't been to like Yellowstone. So I'm not talking like national park, like look at the beauty. But I feel like if Leslie Nope designed a park, it would look like the gathering place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, and I stand by nope that. does love parks. She flipping loves parks. It's enormous. It is gorgeous. And it is magnificent. I'm not going to lie. I have no idea who Leslie Nope is. Leslie Nope, for the folks at home, is uh, the character that Amy Poehler played. In Parks and Recreation. Mm-hmm. I and see, I see. Yeah, and so Amy Poehler played Leslie Nope, who is the world's like most enthusiastic character, relentlessly loves her friends and everything. Like, there's nothing she does halfway. In a lot of ways, she was the moral compass of that TV show. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, I remember... Just saying something. It is, yeah. I remember years ago, whenever there was that trend of, like, describe yourself in three fictional characters, I said, Leslie Nope 
John Avery Whitaker and I don't know who that is either. John Watson from BBC Sherlock. I feel like those three people describe me pretty well. Watson's pretty spot on. Thank you. Thank you. John Whitaker is from a show back in my childhood. He was like legit the moral comp. Like he was like a young Christian thing. And he was like, he was the guy. He's like everyone's bonus dad, so to speak. Do you see yourself as a moral compass? Um, well, now that I've finally seen Encanto, I would say my characters substitute substitute John Avery Whitaker mm-hmm. with Lucia. Then we got Joshua J. Knowles. None of that actually can like sums up my identity as a whole, but it's enough to give people a head start. It's an easy it's an easy on ramp to understand who I am. Nice. I like it. Well, for some background, these two individuals are probably some of the wisest cultured people that I know. Thank you. You didn't have to say that. I didn't. But it is but it is the truth where I feel like you are easily Benjamin's distracting me over here. <sighs> easily someone when you get around where you like instantly step into like your deeper self. You know, like there's people who like you kind of stay on the surface and then there's people like immediately like in the first two sentences, two minutes of a conversation, like you're already in the deep end. You don't know why I think. And I, I don't even think that's exclusive to like us. I mm-hmm. feel like there's people in your life where you just immediately you have a feeling that you're just going to the deep end. You can trust to like go there. I'm honored to hear you say that. What's the truth? Well, yeah, I don't expect you to lie. But birds, birds of a feather do flock together. Uh, Unless they get cast away, but we don't, we don't cast away quite quite yet. I don't I don't know any castaways. Yeah, yeah, I don't know them. So Benjamin, yes, you're moving to Seattle. How's it feel? Um, surreal. I still don't believe that I fully wrap my mind around it. Um, I just got done meeting with uh, an institution about uh, next steps, but all in all. I think because I'm still in this period of transition after coming out of uh, um, a career path that I've been in for the past five years and also which is what uh, ministry children's ministry actually. Um, and so having learned a lot about people because while ministry is seems like a very set factor and like set skill set that you would use um, I've, I'm going to say I've taken advantage of the opportunity that I've had to learn people through this Um, child development, uh, parenting, um, family dynamics, even though those things don't technically fall under just what you would think of when you think of ministry. um, I've taken a lot of the information that is available to me to really get to the depths of understanding people and the kids and the families and the volunteers and leaders that I've worked with in this time. So what are a few of the things that you feel like you've learned about people in your years in ministry? Um, well, let's see. Like you can split it between adults and, and children. Okay. Typically, if you have issues with children, 80% of the time, the problem can be connected back to the adult. Um, children witness, absorb, and... Um, take note of what their parents do and do not do. And uh, children will respond, recreate, and 
replay those things. Uh, and then also with adults, um, the, probably the thing that I've realized the most whenever it comes to adults is that we as a whole, adults and parents, um, sometimes we have not done the work that we needed to do as children to really develop and lead the way that we need to. That's probably the two things that I've really learned and picked up on. So with all the things that you've learned, how do you think it's changed you in the way that you engage with the world? I definitely have a lot more patience. I have a lot more compassion and empathy for the world. Um, Here's the thing. I'm not the most well-off person. Like I'm not so affluent that I can just do and travel and, and have everything that I want just at the snap of my fingers. Um, But it's definitely humbling because I've had the opportunity to realize that I am a, I'm a blessed person. I have a nice life. I'm, I'm happy with who I am, the decisions that I've made. Um, and it's not a, a comparison thing like look at where everybody else is and look at yourself. Um, having learned people and growing and, and seeing people, I've definitely had the opportunity to appreciate life as a whole, the experiences that people have, the insight, the perspective that people have. And I've been able to appreciate all of those things in an individual section. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because w- I'm always <clears throat> interested in in how um, you can go um, how <laughs> how the things that we actually learn transfer over into us actually changing the way that we live, mm-hmm. as opposed to um, like what you said about taking pride in becoming a problem solver. You know, I think there's a difference between learning things that make us more frustrated. Like you get in and you find out like a job is harder than it, than it seemed to be. I mean, I mean, we were talking kind of off mic earlier about how, you know, when you work with people, you wish you that they were black and white and you wish that it was simple mm-hmm. and no gray area, but like working with people is messy, right. you know? And so instead of getting involved in, leading and maturing and molding of people, especially like kids, I think it's easy to kind of lose your patience and become more aggravated as opposed to more empathetic, more patient and let it change you for a positive and a solution based mind. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming social work you have, you have to have a similar desire as somebody in ministry Yeah, when you're engaging. So how, how do you think that, uh, how do you think that working in social work, this is Josh, um, has the kind of like the same but different feel as ministry? So just to add further context, um, Benjamin and I actually worked together in ministry for a number of years. Um, and so I'm actually a youth minister turned social worker. And so there's a there's an immense a number of similarities. Like as I was getting my education, there wasn't a single class I took that I didn't wish I had when I was pastoring. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, all of this is valuable, all of this is meaningful. And so what I like about ministry and social worker kind of and social work, as you were saying, like people 
aren't so black and white that they can all fit into a box. Right. And ministry isn't ministry nor social work are so neat and tidy. Like they deal with people. So their roles expand this whole dynamic of anytime you're doing anything like as a, as a youth pastor, I, had to do a lot of like handiwork, which I suck at. I also had to do a lot of bookkeeping. I also had to do a lot of event planning and all that. And I also had to do spontaneous counseling. Like all of those are things that aren't technically in your job description, but you do it for the people. Um, one of my favorite things um, when I was pastoring that I had to remind myself of is that Jesus died for the people, not the projects. And that's something I have to continually remind myself because at the end of the day, I'm here to serve people, not the systems that I create to serve the people or things like that. And so in social work and in ministry, there's, it's just kind of any of these social service or people driven, um, efforts. Cause it's, it's the human element, which is unfortunately wildly unpredictable, especially when you're dealing with adolescents ex- experiencing puberty. So thankfully I don't do that anymore. Loved it, but <laughs> loved it. But I am, I'm grateful that this new season that I'm entering in has probably a little bit less of that. So. Yeah. Cause I think that there's the, like you said, there's dichotomy between the system and the people. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things like the more we get into like business and like adulting one on one, um, that, I mean, I've just started to realize how little training any adult has in a lot of areas, whether it's like engaging with other humans or having a conversation right? or, you know, in fitness, like breathing, you know, like when was the last mm. time you took a breathing class? You know, it's like the only thing you can think of is like women who are about to give birth going through like trauma. Right, breathing. right. Lamas. Yeah, I was thinking Lamas. <laughs> um, but it's it's not something that we like tangibly and intentionally go after but it plays such an impact on everyday life Mm -hmm. and uh i remember talking to ben was it last night about uh simon cynic quote he was talking about Mm. companies and the ceos and it's like the ceo is not responsible for the sales or like the business side of the company he's responsible for the people who are responsible for the sales Mm. And so there's this dichotomy that it's not it's not about the end result. You're actually it's a it's a people person job, right? Not a sales job, right? And I think if when we transfer um, our minds in any kind of business or ministry to it being a people job mm-hmm. and not a business job or a numbers job, right? Then if we don't, I should say, if we don't transfer over into that mindset, then we completely fail at the job itself. Right. And <clears throat> I'm excited to see what our third guest also has to comment on that because he's actually still involved in ministry as well. And the point that I'm about to make, he also has experience in. Um, and so as I finish up my education, I'm also a restaurant serving like the fine dining industry. And I'm not ashamed to say, like, I do well. Like, I'm good at what I do. Yes, he is. (laughs) Thank you. And what I think is part of the element is that people are so focused and fixated on the, well, let me sell the biggest, best bottle of wine. Is that the other so that I can fatten in my pocket? I'm not naive to the fact that that will also (laughs) benefit my pocket. But um, I also make sure that every guest I have knows that I care about them. And I, and I do that by assessing the situation, like getting the vibe off them and almost reciprocating it, making sure that they get the experience they want 
even though we're fine dining, whatever, if people come in with different reasons, if you're coming in for your 13 year old birthday or you're like celebrating your 57th anniversary or you're just trying to impress your business person, you need to know that I, as your server, care about that. And it's a completely different experience. Completely different. Because yes. if it's that old adage of people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Facts. So they don't care how much the bottle of wine is or whatever, or they don't care about that. But if they know that I care about their event going out specifically how they want it, and if I say, hey, this bottle of wine contributes to your goal, they know that I have their back. Because it's like, hey, this guy clearly cares that's my 57th anniversary and he makes sure to treat this like it's a fairy tale. Because like, it is. It is your special day. And so I make sure to be like, yo, I got you. And so there are times where I've been like, oh, okay, I could probably sell them this super thing and will definitely help me hit rent with this one sale. Or I can give them something that more accurately fits what they want. And so I think that's the thing is that even though I work in social work, I've worked in ministry, I'm also working at the service industry, which I guess there is a theme in my life, but also like at sales as well. But at no point do you get an excuse to not work with people. Mm. And I think that's what's super important for all that we do. Yeah, you're definitely uh, great with people. Thanks. Uh, oh, you're so welcome. Um, because if you have a good EQ when it comes to walking into a room, connecting with people, uh, you can walk into any room whatsoever and be able to make an impact, make a difference, um, even if that difference is simply just listening to someone. Right. Um, and having worked with people what seems like forever, because coming out of uh, before ministry, I was working at, uh, where was I? You were working at uh, a chiropractic? College. That's it. There yeah. we are. Yeah. So even working there with the different dynamics of people from doctors to interns to patients, um, it does require you to understand that either I am going to be abrasive and kind of go against the grain mm -hmm. or I'm going to help propel the vision forward. I'm going to help carry this. Um, and it, a lot of times it is a case by case situation, but I will say that having been in a position where I've been able to witness you do those things, it is, it is very impressive to watch oh. him navigate. It is. Thank you. You're welcome. Cause he seems like it's, like, not, oh, I almost used the word flawless. Um, seamless. <laughs> it is a seamless transition from from person to person, um, which is kind of like seamless as in like just a switch that kind of goes. Yeah. Um, and once you get around people that you know people, you know exactly what they need and how they're going to best respond right. to what you give them. Right, right. Right. And that's something that, in I mean, how long have we known each other? Ten years. Ten years. Ten years now. Um, that is something that I had to learn, and I learned it through. <laughs> I learned it through Joshua because, <clears throat> yes, I yeah, I definitely learned it through Joshua because of the experiences that we've had together. Because first of all, our friendship was very rocky. At the oh beginning. yes, it's very yes, rocky it at the was. beginning. I um, did not like Ben. He did not like me. Um, and we're not going to go into why. No, the why doesn't matter. To, but it's amusing. <laughs> it's amusing. <laughs> It is definitely amusing, but the um, learning how Joshua was very, very, very insightful um, when it came to people, um, and then me being foresightful when it came to people and situations, I would forego feelings and just get to the end saying, hey, stop what you're doing, 
address it because if you don't, this is where you're going to end up. Joshua was more surgical with his approach a lot of the time, more precise, um, where he would be able to just attack or address or present certain things that would definitely get to the root mm-hmm. of things. And me, I was a little bit more abrasive, you know? You were you always targeted and directed your efforts to be super efficient and get to the point, which is always necessary. Period. So, exactly. Period. Period. <laughs> yeah. Which I pretty much sums up the both of you. I mean, you guys are both, like I said, about as wise they come with, like, I think that there's a certain, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Je ne sais quoi. I was thinking this. Syncrasy. It's just, it's almost, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That's going to bug me. Chemical X. Say chemical X. I said chemical X. <laughs> uh, tasteful is what I'm looking for. Tasteful when working with people because there is the underlying feeling is that I care about you mm-hmm. enough to get in the trenches with you and walk through this with you, mm-hmm. not like drop, drop a bomb on you and walk away. Right. And I think that that's people. I think people get addicted to the truth, whether they like the truth or not, they know what the truth feels like, mm. and then they know who to go to for the truth. Mm. So even if they don't like you in the moment, they'll return to you when they need to know the truth. That's true. More than they'll go to the people who they cherry, they know who to go to cherry pick. Right. When they want to hear somebody just like resound what they say, I'm like, yeah, you're right. You know, mm-hmm. screw those people, you know, but they, they know who to go to when they really do need the truth. Um, and I find that super value in, in both of you. Um, but I think that in all of business, I think your view changes on everything. When you view business as the exchange of trust, because business, when it comes down to it, is just a series of stewarded relationships. So when whether it's in ministry, whether it's in fitness, whether it's in fine dining, whether it's in social work, you're selling trust. Right. So the beauty about that is if, if you're selling trust and you're truthful, mm-hmm. you become the go-to person in that industry mm-hmm. for people. It's like when people need a super experience, the same person who brought the business partner in or the new business partner and they need the the wow experience where they're dropping a couple racks, mm-hmm. you know, for a night, they'll go to you. They're bringing their kid in for the 13th birthday. They'll still go to you. You know, that's right. Because they <laughs> <laughs> say that because they, they know you, they, they know that you can read the room and give them what they need and they trust you to do so. And they trust you to be tactful. Same thing in fitness. Like you said, whether you're going against the grain or whether you're like becoming, coming on the hype train, they're still trusting you that you know what you're doing and that you can take them the place that they want to go. So whether somebody's coming in and I'm going against the grain because they're used to lifting really light weights and I'm saying, Hey, if we want to change the body, we got to go heavier. They're saying, I don't want to, but I trust that whatever you're Mm -hmm. saying is Mm -hmm. in my best interest and you can take me there safely. Right. Same thing for, for ministry and, and all people. So when we change our mindset from, trying to get extract and extracting business. How can I extract the most out of this situation for myself Mm. to the point where I'm putting in knowing that my putting in is actually going to return back to me, not just now, but for 
a very long time afterwards. Right, right. You know, I might I might take it in the shorts, so to speak, right now. Say if I if I give somebody a big discount because you know they can't afford it right now, and it's like, oh, you can't afford it. Well, what can you afford? Perfect. I'll right. meet you there. I care about you. I care about your situation. Boom! And all of a sudden, I get five phone calls from their friends. Hey, I heard you took care of Susie. Like mm-hmm. I have a similar situation. Boom. Now I got five more jobs. Right. And I become the person who actually cares about people enough to, you know, take a little bit off the top. Mm-hmm. And and you become the trusted person, not just with money, not right. just with the job, but in life. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that we vastly underestimate the impact that you have on someone's life as a whole outside of just the moment that you're sharing. Mm-hmm. Like, say in fine dining, you have 20 minutes with somebody maybe total mm-hmm. in the whole experience right. but that person could walk away from thinking about you for the rest of their life because of the way that you treated them because of the way they talked to them the way that you got down and looked at their child in the eyes right. and like asked them what they wanted off the menu or patient right. enough to not be like all right kid well you want the chicken strips or the macaroni like <laughs> right you know and i think i not the chicken strips and macaroni. No, I'm yeah. gonna say that's always a good option. It facts. It is. Does does your restaurant, Joshua, yes. do they sell chicken strips and macaroni? We do have chicken strips. But it's like <laughs> a macaroni. lobster. It's a lobster macaroni, isn't it? It can be. We'll add those six ounces of our lost our lobster tail in How there. much would that cost? Just thirty dollars. Just thirty dollars for mac for I noodles, cheese, and lobster. Benjamin. Thirty dollars? Like yeah, I anyway. But anyway. yes. <laughs> but so, I, I agree with you though, in the sense of it does what it looks like is, you know, it's less thinking about what I can get from the situation but what I can give. Um I actually heard a comedian, Michael Jr., talk about how he would do his career as a comedian for a while and then he realized trying to get laughs from people, but right. instead he's like, Oh, let me switch this. Let me give people the opportunity to laugh. And that's also when I heard him talk about that, that's kind of what changed in my serving experience in that when I'm serving people and I've got bills to pay, like it's a win-win situation. They're going to have a good, a good time. And usually that good time leads to generosity and everybody comes out a winner. But if I give people a quality experience, if I give them the opportunity to make memories, this, that, the other, my bills are paid and they leave happy. We like when the bills are paid. We do love when bills are paid. Mm-hmm. I will say, um, kind of to point to back to what Jeremy was saying about um, not doing it for the gain, right? but doing it for people. Mm-hmm. Um, working with people can always be rewarding if you look for it to be rewarding, mm. um, but it can also be very, very trying. Packs. And then also, um, I, I'm going to say this, Jeremy, you've recently been working more with younger students Have. and younger clients. Um, I've been working with children for a really long time. Um, what I have learned is that, especially with children, you never really know, never really know what kind of um, return you're going to get on your investment. If you get a return. If you get it. (laughs) If you get it. Um, If you're so lucky to find that. (laughs) So I just recently had my last day um, as a children's pastor, and the number of, like, cards, comments um, from kids were beautiful. It was sweet. It was lovely. Um, but it wasn't them that um, I think really, really hit me. It was the perspective of the parents. Mm. Um, you know, while I was there, the parents were definitely um, engaged. They were excited that their kids were, you know, back there with me. 
uh, with the other leaders. But it was the commentary that the parents were giving me about the things that their kids came and told them. Mm. And the parents had these moments where they were just like, oh my gosh, like my child is developing, they're, they're doing great. One moment in particular, um, there is a brother and sister, and I just noticed that the brother, he's an older brother, um, whenever his sister, I want to say the brother was probably in fourth or fifth grade, the sister was in like kindergarten or first, um, and when the sister went to go uh, play a game, we were having a game time, she, um, she won the game, and her brother got up, jumped, shouted, um, applauded her, gave her a hug, gave her a high five, and I was like, man, that's a really cool moment. You know, the brother mm. not only, you know, celebrated her, but engaged with her. And I went back. Anytime I get moments like that, I'm like, oh, duh, like the parents need to know. And so I go back and I tell the dad. And, I'm, you know, as I'm telling him this, he just begins to, to cry and to weep. I say weep, but like he was crying pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, are you okay? He said, you have no idea. He was like, I've been trying mm. for a long time to get him to celebrate his sister, to be a part of you know, what his sister's doing. And he said, and I'm not mad that I missed it. He said, I'm just happy that he's listening. Yeah. He's like, and I'm happy that, that you got to see that moment. He said, because I trust you as a voice in my child's life. Right. You know, and sometimes the investment and the return isn't necessarily for you, but again, for right. people, for right. sure, you know? Um, and so it's, it's so important that when you are doing these things, that your reasons for doing it are pure that like the intention behind it, you know, definitely like everybody wants to get a bag. Like I get it. Everybody wants their check. Everybody wants their coin. I get it. Um, but if you're going to work with people, you need to understand what it, what working with people means and what it requires of you. Um, you can't work with people and expect people to be, um, the thing that gives you life every single day. Oh, no, you cannot. You cannot. You're going to be disappointed. You can't do that long term. It's not sustainable. And you'll never get the bag that feels big enough to love people the way that they deserve. Exactly. Ooh. Yeah. Go ahead and say that, that again. That's good. So you'll never get a bag big enough that is equivalent to what it takes to love people the way that they deserve. Yeah. Because it can be very sacrificial. And I think what's kind of like hidden underneath all of that as well is that Benjamin only saw that opportunity one these are things Benjamin does naturally that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't already had that mindset and that focus he wouldn't have noticed the second grader cheering on the fifth grader if he wasn't like genuinely paying attention to the room as a whole and the students but then on top of that he wouldn't have had that inkling and that umption to go share that with the parents if he wasn't considering the parents as well in this process he wasn't thinking of the individual child that was engaged in the game i gotta make sure kids are having fun he was thinking of the family unit as a whole mm. and so that speaks to that whole people thing because like you're not seeing the individual alone there's a social work theory about the person and environment and that biopsychosocial element to where you are considering the person as an entirety mm. not just because if you're thinking about just grabbing the bag or just selfishly you see a fifth grader playing a game on a sunday while you're babysitting them but if you're actually pastoring and caring for that person, you realize that person is a sister, that's a person's a daughter, and that also influences how you serve them. And so he mm. saw the family dynamic and how that can be elevated from this one moment that so many of us might have missed if we're not actually focused on serving the person as they deserve. Because the bag yes. will never be big enough for that. Thank you, Joshua. Well, I think, and I think there's a easy phrase that says, success leaves clues. And the people that 
know what to look for, know the clues. Mm. You know, like when you've been in it, like you know how hard it is to get somebody to do X, Y, Z. Right. And so when when you see the little clues, the only thing that the only reason why that would stand out as something to go tell the parent about is if you know that it's noteworthy. Right. Otherwise, right. it's just like two siblings playing together and it's like, oh, that's cute. You right. know, but if it's if there's that battle, like obviously there's a battle involved, you know, where the dad's losing sleep over like, man, I wish little Johnny could just get it. Like, right. I just really want it for him, you know, and, and that's the hardest part for any any type of social work is that. For me, like, I love championing people. Right. And it's hard, but you can never want something for somebody more than they want it for themselves. And that's, like, one of the hardest things for me. Yes. And, like, one of the phrases that really, like, grinded my gears and it was really hard for me to swallow was you have to leave the people who aren't ready for the people who are. And because you, these people will suck you dry when you are no longer able to give yourself fully to the people who are actually ready to receive. Right. You know? And I think that like, like to your point, Ben, about, you know, the parents or, or seeing how those things impact. And one of the things that I always try to share with like other coaches um, or leaders is you have a responsibility with the acts that you've been giving into someone's life. And obviously there's levels to access, but whether it's a small moment where you just run into somebody randomly at the street, at the grocery store, or you're intimately uh, engaged on a week-to-week basis in a friendship, in a mentorship, et cetera, or you know, whether it's like, say, in a fitness setting where you're getting somebody multiple times a week, hours on end, where like to you, like you get to show up, you collect your bag, and you're like, this is my job. But when you flip that on its head, like you said, when you're looking at from a bird's eye view at like how impactful this thing could be mm-hmm. when truly done with wisdom and care. Right. You, I mean, and from my point of view, it's like I get adults in their very few moments of the day that they have me time where they don't have their kids, where they're not at the job, you know, and I like the early morning classes because people come in without their makeup, the hair is crazy, you know, that's like legit their me raw time. Probably mm-hmm. nobody else in their life besides their spouse and their kids sees them like that. Right. But I get that time with them where I get the microphone and they listen to me for a complete hour, they're stretched while I get to talk to them, whatever I want for 15 right. minutes, you know, and and I like I really had a realization a couple years in where I'm like, Man, if if these guys don't have a life coach or a therapist or a pastor or a mentor, like there's they really have nobody that's pouring into their life. Right. No one that offers them hope, no one offers them tool, no one offers them truth, something that feels like that could get them outside of their moment. And I think that's what really changed my perspective over myself is like I have a responsibility with the time that I've been given mm-hmm. with these people's me time. Um, and it'd be so, it's so easy to, like you said, it could like on a Sunday morning with you have, with your kids, it'd be easy just to like, you know, throw the towel in, say your spiel, babysit the kids, hold it down to their parents, get in there, give them some candy, right. send them away. And they're, they're all happy because they got some candy and some playtime. We don't have time for that. Don't. <clears throat> Nobody. But, and I think that that's something that. I talk about a lot now, and I think, Ben, why, why you're so successful at what you do is I would say if you, ch- you can change the expectation, you can change the standard. 
And when you don't talk to kids as if they like, as if they don't have the capability to think, if they don't have the ability to be disciplined, if they don't have the ability to be creative, then that's the way they're going to act. They're going to reflect your expectation. 100%. So, and I think that there's no part of you that thinks there's some junior version of anything mm. for the kids. Like you right. talk to them as if they're mature mm-hmm. and if they have the ability to think. And, and when you do that, you raise a standard. And I think that that's, that's so valuable because on a broader scale, so many things, like so many adults are still children in their minds. And their mindsets, and I should say. I just want to come back because that was such a good point about if you change the expectation, you change the standard. And I think that goes along with what you're saying about adults still having children in their mind. Because even for themselves, the expectation for themselves is still childish. And so that's why they haven't risen to the standard that they can become just because their own expectations are too low for themselves. But I, I agree with that. I have seen time and time again, even what's funny is that Sometimes whenever I, and when I say challenge, I mean when I present kids with an opportunity to grow or to prove themselves, not that they have to prove it to me, but prove it to themselves, mm. that they are capable of doing something. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. here's the thing. I, I'm not going to push a child to the point of, of breaking. I'm not going to you know, force them to do anything, but presenting with opportunities. Mm. The things that I've seen the most, the successful children, are children who have not just a single voice encouraging them to accomplish something, right. but it's something that the parents also are like, you know what? You're right. My child can do this. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me get what you're doing and let me do this as well. Or the parent will come tell me, Hey, my child, well, they're not going to use these verbiage exactly, but they're like, Hey, my child needs another voice to encourage them in this. And hearing it from me is one thing, but hearing it from you is another. And so they will then ask me, you know, have a conversation with my child. That is one situation. The other situation that I've run into sometimes when setting an expectation for children, whether it be behavior or honestly, let's yeah, behavior. Honestly, the thing that and mindset, the roadblock that I run into is that the parents have not passed that roadblock. Mm-hmm. And because the parents have not passed that roadblock, it is easy for them to not only deflect the responsibility that they are capable of rising up to, but then now they are pouring that same expectation and mindset onto their child, which then allows them to deflect the responsibility as well because it's someone else's responsibility. It's someone else's fault. Mm. You're always, yeah, people are always going to attack you because that's just who you are. You know, you, you, you have this, you have this, you have this, you know, and that's okay because, you know, you're made, you're, you're made just right. Here's the thing. We all have choices that we make every single day. And whether or not I take responsibility for my own actions is my responsibility. It is my responsibility to take responsibility for my actions. It's my fault. Sometimes you have to be okay with saying, you know what? I messed up. That is my fault. Specifically with <laughs> with this one child, he was, whenever he first came in, cussed my mom out. <laughs> Yeah. Didn't see that coming. Did, yeah. He cussed my mom out and my mom was like, oh, okay. Okay. She said, I see how it is. But you know what? The funny thing is, is that my mom and myself and, you know, my other leaders, every time that kid came in, we did not treat him like the time that he cussed one of us out or cussed out mm-hmm. somebody or threw a chair. We treated him like it was the first time that he came in because we have an expectation 
And so I'm not going to treat him like his mistake. I'm going to treat him like what I expect him to be, mm-hmm. you know? And we have to do that with people as well. If we're just going to keep a list of things that people have done wrong, like that's all we're going to expect of them, right? That is not to say that we don't have boundaries. It's not to say that we don't have balance and that we allow, like you were saying, full access to every part of who we are. There are checks and balances with everything, you know? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I'm going to allow a person a certain level of transparency so they can see my truth, but it does not mean that I have vulnerability with them, which gives them access to hurt me if they wanted to, right? So by doing that, you create, you create a balance, excuse me, you create a balance because you do have to have a certain level of transparency with people for them to trust you. They have to be able to see, you know what, I struggle too, or, you know, I had to overcome this, I had to do this, I had to do that. But being able to build that with people um, is very, very important. And I know it went off on a little bit of a tangent there. No, it's good. Because no, I think there's, whether it's in your own life or it's in someone else's, you're either an active participant or a passive participant. Hmm. So whether it's, like you said, with parenting, you're either an active participant in your child's life or you're a passive participant where like you're hoping that they're self-sufficient and then you're like almost aggravated when they need something or they have a question or they want to play. And it's like, can't you see I'm busy, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think with that, when it becomes a passive participant, in your own life, basically everything's now happening to you. So now your whole entire life is reactionary. Yes. Your whole entire life is based on what's happening around you. And an active participant is like realizing that good, bad, ugly, you're where you're at because of the decisions that you made. Mm-hmm. And, the res- and the responses that you had to what happened to you. You can't always control what happens to you, but you can control what you do with it. And, and I think that... One of the greatest pieces of advice that I've heard in an authoritative space, whether it's adult to adult, adult to child, is when things go awry, because things will go awry. Every time. When you, if you meet emotion with emotion, you turn yourself from the authority to the peer. Go ahead and elaborate on that. So say it's a, with a, say it's a parent, say it's a pastor, and you're dealing adult to child. So when that person comes to you and they are, say, frustrated, they are up in arms, whether it's crying, they're mad, they're angry, cussing out your mama. So if, if you meet him with the same emotion that he's coming to you at, you now lowered your emotional maturity to his level. Yes. So now, now it becomes, instead of leading him in the way that he should go, it becomes now, now your peers and you're going to flex authority. So you're going to do whatever I say because at this point I'm older, I'm stronger, and I have the ability to punish. When really, now it just becomes a power struggle where now you're flexing all the things that you have over. As opposed to being able to see the broader perspective, keep your, keeping your emotions about you, and leading that person in the way that they should go. So taking a second realizing, okay, what is actually needed in this situation, which you guys are both good at doing. It's like taking a big deep breath. All right, buddy, it's going to be okay. So like, what do we need to do? You know, mm-hmm. what, what, where does this person need to go? What does this person need to learn in this situation? And how are we going to get them there? So inside, 
the inside part of us wants to like shake somebody up and be like, let's go sit on the chair. I don't want right. to hear you. But that's same thing. But that's us wanting life to be black and white, super simple. Because we want to flex our authority to get something that is counterproductive to our happy energy out. Yeah. But that's not what we're in that place of authority for. So a big part of that is being able to get in the trenches and guide somebody to a new place. So creating new brain pathways in that moment that says, if when I feel this, this is not the only option. The only option is not to just kick, scream, yell until I find my way through. It's actually, what do I do with this emotion and what do I actually want? I would say someone who responds like that doesn't actually understand authority. Well, for sure. That's, no. But that, and that's what I'm saying. I think that we, we use the word leader and coach, pastor, all these words so loosely mm -hmm. that there's actually no prerequisite to actually be in that place. Correct. So that should be for, from there really should be. And that's be the hard, I mean, but what's like, that's the thing is what's the test. I mean, it's so hard to not know until something goes awry, what somebody's like truly made of. I mean, anybody can sit in an interview and say, here's the situation. What would you do? You know, anybody can say in that moment, but until you have somebody that's like in your house stomping on your couch when you're like eyes turn red and you just want to like go ham on somebody, you're not really going to know what that person really has done the deep work about. So I've actually been studying this a little bit, I guess, at least in the setting of like, you know, hiring, firing, all that good stuff. Yeah, you don't you don't really know. And it is actually a super good practice to do those scenario questions to figure people out, to be like, if you were in this, because the same way that we've been talking about different scenarios here, we've been, we've been able to, you can you'd learn about someone in these different settings. Do. And so what's helpful in those is to be more of a learning organization. Cause the thing is, again, it's not black and white. So simple that we can just be like, Oh, you are qualified. You are not qualified. You are a perfect fit. You're not a perfect fit. And so again, we have to keep in mind that people are, wild in a beautifully creative and chaotic way. And That's a beautiful way of saying that. Oh, thanks. And so we have to understand that our systems are designed and supposed to be made to support that. It's not supposed to, it's not supposed to regulate it, but it's supposed to be able to create the safety net that if someone does fail, they are also going to be prepared and paired up with the steps to succeed and remedy that situation and not excused. Exactly. So what if, what if you what if in that process there was a step required where somebody who saw you handle a situation was required to call and explain how you handled it? What do you mean? Like an outsider perspective of how you handle a situation as opposed to you saying how you did it. Honestly, I mean, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing. I think that if, if someone's perspective and they were, you know, not jaded in their explanation if they just gave their perspective on what it looked like i think that it's something to be learned from i don't necessarily know if that person's going to have all of the facts but for a lot of people and for the general public at large i mean perception is reality and i'm all about internal and external accountability amen and so for example um one of the organizations i've worked with they were going through the council of accreditation process. And so pretty much in like the simplest terms, it is the nonprofit gold star of like, we have our crap together. Mm. And so of course 
every year internally, there's this measure of like, how are we doing? What are we doing? How do we make sure we have continuous quality improvement? Like you do that internally. However, you also have this organization come in every four years and they sweep through everything. Mm. Like, hey, how are we doing this? And how do we do when there's an aggressive youth involved? What do we do when there's a fire drill to how do you handle accounting and all that? And so it's checking under all your rugs, all of them, all of them. There can be no skeletons in the closet. And if there were, how did you get rid of them? Like, that's how thorough (laughs) that's how thorough this is. And so. I believe that all of us as individuals and as as organizations should be mindful of how am I checking myself and how can I also invite the feedback and critique and accountability from others? And once I do receive it, am I going to receive it well and actually use it or am I going to be offended? Because as you mentioned before, you can't be cherry picking ideas. Honestly, yeah. Yeah. I honestly, I like after having worked with Joshua uh, in um, the same organization and then... Joshua going out and gaining so much education and experience and then us having conversations about similar situations, different locations and seeing how things are handled differently. It really personifies the idea that, you know, certain organizations have to have outside perspective, outside feedback. Yes. And then also have to have the understanding of, um, of optics of what things right. look like on the outside right. from an outsider's perspective. Um, not everything can just be put under the same lens Mm-mm. and be assumed like, well, it's fine. Right. No, no, you don't need that. Right. Um, and the more that I've learned from Joshua in his ventures of social work and everything that he has grown in, it has really shown me that, Honestly, churches need social workers. Uh, yes, Father. Amen. Hallelujah. Churches, Say it for the people in the back. Churches need social workers because there are so many situations that could be better remedied than a single just a talk. There are so many situations that could be remedied. And when I say remedied, I mean like they could have a fruitful resolution. Not just a Band-Aid. And not, I mean, what you want, not just like some... Uh, What's the stuff called? Olive the- oil and a little pat on the back. Can be <laughs> not, center, olive, right? not olive oil. <laughs> Low, at least coconut. Jeez. <laughs> you know, there are so many situations that could be that could be handled, you know, better because it's not just addressing the spiritual nature of a person, but the emotional, the mental, and physical physical nature of the person. Mm-hmm. It takes care of the person as a whole, um, and not just you know a spiritual sense. It it is really considering who this person is in total and not just what um, an institution feels is like the most important, you know? Yes. Now, go ahead. So the thing is social workers need it. Yes. But the difference between somebody who is say currently holding the situation, not as ideally as possible and somebody who say a social worker with experience is the tools that they have at their disposal to handle a situation, which is why they should pair up. So, or you could actually equip the people who are in the positions because to a, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, you know? So if you don't, if you don't understand how to handle situation, you're going to do the only thing that you know how to do. And a lot of times it's not pretty, you know, because you're using the wrong tool at the wrong times. You know, and and with that, the unfortunate thing is like 
if you're in carpentry and you're using like the back end of like a, a wrench to try to hit a nail because you don't have a hammer, small consequences. If you're handling a bad situation with a child who has a bad home life and they're acting up, massive consequences that can literally change that person's life forever by the way you handle a situation, right? So that's when the stakes get raised by a million percent. When you're dealing with people, it's not simple, you know? And so the tools that are provided, or I said, I should say, are acquired, are few. And so the problem is that there's the, the jobs needed are a plenty, but the equipped people are few. And yes. so the issue is not that we need to multiply the people who are fully equipped and send them out. The thing is that the people who are currently in a position who are unequipped need to take some personal responsibility to get equipped. Um, so I, I want to return back because I didn't realize that. This I feel like we should bring these. Taylor in at some point. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Um, I'll say this while you get Taylor up on the line. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, but I didn't realize I get passionate about this. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I was like, Josh, what are you passionate about talking about? He's like, I don't really know until I get into it. And I was like, yeah, apparently it's this because <laughs> we're talking about, and I appreciate what Benjamin said. Uh, that's great in the sense of like, you know, churches need social workers and this, that, the other. And like I said before, like there's not a class that I took that wouldn't have made me a better pastor. Yes. But at the same time to return to the point of, expectations determine the standards mm -hmm. our standards and our expectations of our faith-based organizations our churches and those leaders i feel are pretty low um or or it can it just needs to be adjusted to reflect the needs of our people right now we're still kind of going on this it's not archaic however it does need an iphone update at least did you say archaic i did say archaic because right now like i'm all for the idea of having a pastor or a leader that is super well-prepared and well-versed in scripture. Like that is in fact important. However, it is irresponsible for us to also put expectations of nonprofit management, financial management, people management, and all that on the same person. If this person goes to school and studies biblical principles and all that, they might be able, might be able to also lead the organization. But if they haven't been even in a situation to acquire the information they need to steward that organization well, you'll end up with traumatized people. You'll end up with people who have been mismanaged and things like that. And from my limited perspective, I've seen churches get the trend of having like an executive pastor, this, that, the other. Now, that trend happened as I was exiting the ministry. And so what I believe is supposed to be the case is this idea of a lead pastor or whatever that is like you know in the deep in the prayer closet 47 hours a day and huh. yada 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 getting all holy and whatnot so they can lead the people and then the executive pastor handles kind of the knit the grit and the details and all the other stuff but i feel like the church the lower not the capital c church not like the body of christ but like the different churches we see around our neighborhoods are supposed to be more reflective of the body of Christ in the sense of diverse set of skills to reach a diverse set of people in different mm. and diverse scenarios. And so I'm not, I'm not <clears throat> mad. I, I, you mentioned that the people that are currently working at the churches should take a personal responsibility to do X, Y, and Z. Yes. 
I hear that and I partially agree. The only reason I partially agree is because chances are if you're already working at that faith-based organization, you're already giving 150% of what you're doing and who you are to this. I disagree. Interesting that you would say that with three people who previously worked in the ministry. Not everyone does. So here's a phrase that changed my view on that forever. People are giving the best of what they think they have, the best they think they can with what they think they have. So that doesn't mean they're giving the best of what they actually could do or mm-hmm. what they best they have at their disposal. They're giving the best of what they think they can do with what they think they have. So that is what requires the deep work to figure out what you actually have at your disposal. Because I, w- I would argue even if they did have an extra hidden 20% in their back pocket to perform the jobs they're already doing to the best of their perceived ability, that it shouldn't go to the church. They need, they, chances are churches and faith-based organizations and almost all social service entities are working their direct service workers to an unhealthy balance. And so for me, even if they do have that extra, I don't think it should go to the church. It should go back to them being a fuller and holder person. So do you think that it's less stressing on you when you actually feel like you have more tools at your disposal to, to accurately handle a situation? Or do you think that it's more stressful when you feel unequipped to handle a situation? Is it more stressful to be under-equipped to handle a situation or more stressful to be over-equipped? Yeah, so say if say it's, say it's simple terms, right? So going back to like the hammer and nail. So if I have a nail mm-hmm. and it's a simple job, if I just need to build a box, right? Mm-hmm. I have all the wood, I have the nails, and I have a hammer, perfect. That's an easy job. Mm-hmm. But if I don't, if I say I have a screwdriver, Right. That job becomes a whole different job. Could take me 10 times as long if I'm trying to bang a nail in with the Mm -hmm. backside of a screwdriver or smack it. Now I got to go find around another tool. I'm looking in the back of my truck to see if I got anything. And then the alternative is if you have one nail, but eight, like 14 different hammers, maybe screwdrivers and all that, like which one's more stressful? Well, I'm saying if you have the proper tools for the job, it's a lot less stressful than if you are unequipped when you're trying to basically scramble to try to figure out how to handle the situation that you're not equipped to do. So I'm uh, saying if you are, I'm not saying that you, that hidden 20%, mm-hmm. like you should give even more of what you're already giving. Mm-hmm. I'm saying if for yourself, mm-hmm. if you, if you're doing, say, if you're just reading or you're asking questions about from other people, if I feel uncomfortable, that tells me I need to go learn something. So if I find myself in a situation right. where I don't necessarily know, mm-hmm. I need to go find somebody who knows as right. opposed to just kind of like force my way through. So for my own sake, I need to go and read or listen. So when I come back, that situation is a lot less stressful when I know what to say or who I need to direct people to as opposed to becoming even more anxiety-ridden when I'm probably right. underpaid and overworked. Right, and I think that's an incredible train of thought that also shares no accountability to your leadership mm-hmm. because that puts all of that responsibility on you, and that's great, and that's also why I'm doing macro social work. Because I look more at the systems and how that impacts the individuals. And so and this is kind of the argument, if you will, that I get with people all the time in the sense of like, yeah, clinical work or direct service, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, I get that. And what you're saying is valid. But what it doesn't count is a system that puts you in that position. And so, yes, there are a lot of people who need to take personal accountability for their actions and growing and going to that next level. However, people who are already at this elevated status of leadership need to be aware for sure of how their decisions and their lack of action or their actions have made undesirable work conditions. Now, that is also 
like I'm not even I'm not even just saying the leaders are the ones to blame because like let's, if you're in child services and you need to rescue children from unhealthy environments, that's not just the direct service worker rescuing the child that probably needs to figure out how to take care of themselves and their grow. And it's also not on their supervisor or the leader of DHS, so to speak, to help that child. But it's also on us as a society of like, how are we making sure we minimize the amount of abuse that are happening in our homes? Like that's a, that's a group, that's a big group project. For right sure. So. Yeah. Cause I think these, I think like for myself in the last couple of years, I just have to go into go into learning uh, the going into with a proper expectation. Um, be, like, cause I think that going back to a previous podcast about unspoken expectations, you go premeditated resentments. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that one's my favorite. Um, I think that plays a role, but I think if we go into the job when you know, like, from past experiences that most likely it's going to be underpaid overworked job. Mm -hmm. Right. If we, the only thing that we have control over is ourself. Right. So that has to be the expectation growing, going in to, to honestly save you from your own resentment because mm -hmm. the company that you're working for is not going to lose sleep over you. They're not going to lose sleep over your anxiety, over the stress, over the overworking, over your barely being able to pay the bills, even though you're doing above and beyond your call of duty. You have to go in with, honestly, this mindset that the company doesn't care about what you have to say mm -hmm. or the ailments that you have. So anything that you do has to directly come out of your own culture that you've built and out of the identity that you have. Because anything else, like we were listening to before, victim mindset, anything that you're giving power over the setbacks that you have is already a victim mindset. Because you're saying something outside of my control controls me. So when you get all that aside, you just have to accept it for what it is. Mm -hmm. This is the job that I signed up for. Mm -hmm. How am I, is the, is the company going to help me get better at my job, make it less stressful, equip me more? No. So what is my option? My option is either to leave or I have to equip myself more. Mm -hmm. Because we all know in, say, in that position, I'm sure there's people who are going way above and beyond the call of duty and they changed thousands, millions of lives mm -hmm. that we may never hear about. And right. there's also people who are getting the same exact check who are doing the absolute bare minimum. Mm -hmm. So what's the separator? The people who go above and beyond is the people who care more but have also done the deep work, the time, the experience in order to become better equipped to handle situations. So why I'm excited to bring Taylor in on this conversation is because he's done, he's kind of straddled that tension in the sense of he's been a pastor and a minister without pay while working another job. And then ultimately got to that point to where he was able to do it full time. And that's, we love bivocational people. Yeah, both, but they don't get enough praise and recognition, which is yeah, but the fact that he was able to do that, like he challenged himself and he had to grow and all that good stuff. But oh, we're bringing I'm, Taylor on the call right now. Yeah, I'm excited to hear what he has to say about that. Let's. Hello, Taylor. What is up? What's cracking? Welcome to the OTL podcast, my friend. How are you, sir? Better now that you're here with us. So we have Joshua Benjamin on the line, and we're talking about social work 
and all types of things. So Joshua is going to lay it down and he's going to bring you this conversation right now. Ready, set, go. Absolutely. So Taylor, we have talked about the moon, the sun, the stars, and half of the things in between. Because we are talking about, well, right before you jumped on, I was talking about how you've actually done the difficult work of growing and stretching yourself, um, unlike others may have. But Jeremy and I had a little bit of a disagreement in the sense of what that looks like and how much of a responsibility is it on the individual to grow into and, you know, give themselves that more fulfilling opportunity at the workplace and how much of that is on the leadership. But then we have returned to the point of if you're experiencing these challenges at this workplace, is it on you? And I brought up how you've worked bivocationally to where you would minister and that would not be your source of income and you'd also have another job. And so from your perspective, what does it look like to live in that tension of having something you're passionate about that does not sustain you while also doing another role that's not necessarily encouraging you to give it your all yet you still have to do that in order you know to eat and feed your family you want to speak to that at all mm-hmm. um You can. Nothing like throwing you into the deep end. Yeah, sorry. You did just kind of jump in <laughs> like that, you know. We we I, I should have told you to bring floaties, but I know you're a strong swimmer, metaphorically speaking, so I mean the bigger question <laughs> comes down to uh, a sense of uh, purpose or um, I think Are you there? Hold up my head. Oh, we got oh, a bad service in Oklahoma. Not the real Oklahoma is Caller. Oh, Caller's back. Taylor, welcome back to the show. <laughs> you there? Mic check. That's me, Bill. Taylor, are you there? Hello? Can you hear me? Oh, we can hear yes. you now. We can hear you now. There we go. My bad, guys. I apologize. I guess my headphones are glitching on me. <laughs> so we, we, uh, we heard so, it comes to a sense of purpose, and then we lost you. Oh, leaving us on that call. Okay. There. Yeah, so for me, uh, like bivocational, um, it was something I believed I was put on earth to do. And so the sacrifices that it would take to do so um, – were what they were. And so when you know you, when you believe that you are meant to do something purpose to do something called to do something, you find the re, like this ability to be innovative really quick. And so not being a part of the church, not being a part of ministry wasn't an option for me. So if that meant having two jobs, then two jobs is what it was. If that meant, um, figuring out how to get really creative with time so I could balance kids and marriage and ministry, then, that's what that meant because it's what I believe I was put here to do. And so, and that also meant changing what that would look like at times. Uh, you know, sometimes you have to get innovative and not just how you get to the place that you want to be at, but how you actually do the thing you feel like you're called to do. Mm. And so for me, it was like, <clears throat> there was a whole season when we shifted 
from being, uh, you know, student pastors to what we would call a hosting pastor, which basically is like a, a first experience lead. And so in that season, that's what was necessary because we were coming out of a church that was wrapped up in all kinds of chaos and trauma and we weren't good. And so we needed to figure out how to do life well together uh, and not need to carry the full weight of stage communication and prepping a message every week and um, leading people who lead other people. It was like we needed a, a safer space to grow because we didn't realize we'd never really had that opportunity before. And so there was like a two and a half year stretch where ministry for me looked like high fiving somebody at a front door. Uh, and that meant changing a lot of what I saw ministry as like it ministry wasn't just being on a stage with a mic in my hand. Ministry was loving the person in front of me. Uh, ministry was finding ways to add value to other people's lives. And right. so for two and a half years, that was just really celebrating people and loving them well. And, creating an energy in the lobby and creating space that like, regardless of your story, your background or your past, there was a really simple first step you could take and you could be a part of creating a really special moment for people. Um, and so by vocationally, that's what it looked like for me. And it looked like changing and going with the flow of life until now I am full time. But at no point throughout any of that process, was it not worth the work? Was it not worth the sacrifice? It just meant playing with what I thought it had to look like. And mm. what I experience usually is we have like preconceived notions, whether created for ourselves or given to us, of what the thing we want to do has to look like. And I right. found in my life that very rarely do things have to be a certain way almost always there's a new way to do it. Almost always there's an innovative option to do it. Almost always there's space in your calendar to do the thing that you feel called to. It just means, are you willing to adapt, um, mold it, shape it, change it so that it could be life-giving? Um, and in my experience, that's where ministry usually goes south is mm -hmm. <laughs> we've been told it has to be a certain way. It has to look a certain way, feel a certain way. And so we'll burn all the ships to the ground trying to make a square peg fit around hole. But the question isn't how do I make something look like what someone else told me is like, what was I uniquely put here to do and how can I run with that? Right. And life is unique and changes all the time. And you add kids into the story and pandemic and everything shifts. And if you don't have a philosophy that your call can change or it can shift or it can adapt, then it's just not going to work and ministry tends to be one of the least flexible things on the planet, in my opinion. Yeah, that's straight cash. Why do you feel like it is the most uh, unflexible? Why do I feel like it's one of the least, uh, the least flexible? Yes. I think the reason I think that is because, like I said, I think people think it has to look a certain way. And I think depending on what denomination you came from or what background you have, um, we don't teach people to think. We teach them just to listen. Right. And the problem with that is like every generation comes with a new challenge, but they also come with a new gift to the world. Mm, and like yeah. if you look at human history, it doesn't stay the same. <clears throat> the struggles you were facing in 1850 aren't the struggles you're going to be facing in 2050. Praise. And what happens is you better come out swinging right now, dog. <laughs> Y'all here swinging for fences off the rip, but I'm here for it. I like it. <laughs> Yeah, so I think what happens is is we want people to stay where they are uh, and 
it just doesn't work that way. I don't think God wants it that way because I think everything about the way Scripture paints the relationship we have with Him is learning new things and seeing new things. Um, and so why shouldn't the ministry be that way? Why shouldn't the bride of Christ adapt the same way? Um, and I think what happens is, is we try to make people stay where they are and it just can't work that way, nor should it, you know, the Bible talks about going from glory to glory, uh, you know, behold, he's doing a new thing. And so, um, I think what, I think the reason ministry stays where that is because it's uncomfortable because if I have a generation that cares about social justice, it probably means I should read up on social justice. Uh, if I have a generation that's asking questions that we've never asked before, then maybe I need to start trying to figure out, like, what are some of those questions being asked? Are there answers we can find to them? Uh, and that's difficult because it means learning something new. And ministry is usually built to keep power, not give it away. And that's what's unfortunate is because it's the antithesis of, I think, what the kingdom of God was meant to be. And I think anytime you see people trying to white knuckle power, you start seeing people get taken advantage of. Uh-oh. But the best ministries, the best examples, the most beautiful moments in history of the church are when they sacrificially live for the person next to them mm. instead of trying to hedge their bet and keep power for themselves or keep comfort for themselves. And nothing made that more apparent than the pandemic. I mean, mm. every yes. church was fighting to maintain what they'd always done instead of asking, wait, what do the people need today? Yes. Right, we, have pod, we have podcasts and sermons and content that is just constantly getting pushed out during that time period of like, the church matters. You got to be in person at the church. And I love the church. It does matter. I think you like should find a community that you belong in. But also, if I'm immunocompromised and I'm terrified, and the most mm-hmm. wise decision for me and my family is to be at home, now what? Yeah. Instead of guilting people to try to be uncomfortable or grow, maybe we should put the burden on ourselves to adapt. Maybe we should put the burden on ourselves as leaders to change and ask questions and learn new things instead of just assuming. Well, kids today, you know, back in my day, we, we just we just listened. We respected the flag, God, and country, and that's what we did. Uh-oh. And it's like, well, I don't have to tell you. Like, the world is different, and it's spun different. And maybe the picture you had of your world, your church, and ministry is different than it actually is. Mm-hmm. And I think every generation faces moments where they are confronted with a belief that they held to be true that really isn't true. <clears throat> And what we do in those spaces, what we do in those moments will dictate, I think, a lot about how we're perceived and the good we can do in the world. Taylor, um, if I could just ask this question real quick. Um, Yeah. Do you feel as though an individual's inability to operate in moments like this speaks to how they feel as though God can actually operate? Like, do you feel as though they feel as that because God has done it one way specifically, or their faith in God has, has led them to believe that this is what happened whenever I was younger. So this is how it needs to continue to happen. Um, that if they're trying to force that to happen in current and present day, that their understanding and their, their idea of what is possible through God is now limited. Yeah, I absolutely do. Uh, 100%. I think, um, (laughs) I think it's funny because like our whole faith kind of hinges right on the belief that uh, we're not our own right? As, as followers of Jesus. So if you're listening to the podcast and you're a person of faith, one of the major premises of the whole thing is that like we have a savior, we have a king. But like it's funny because when it comes to growing, stretching, changing mindsets, we want it to be the opposite. 
we want God to get in line with what made us comfortable or how we perceived it versus allowing him to adapt us. I think anytime you come to a solution and you are wanting, wishing, or expecting God to do something, then I think you flipped it. Because I think the question is to be, God, what are you doing now? And it might look like what it did before. But like if, if I come into a scenario and I need God to do it a certain way, then I've already limited what he's doing. So I, I, mean, I guess I just repeated what you said, but I absolutely agree. I think the question should never be, God, I need you to do it my way. It's what are you calling me to do right now? <laughs> well, first off, there's so much gold in what you just said. You yeah. uh, came on the five fingers of death and just dropped bomb after bomb. And I'm absolutely <laughs> loving it. Uh, there's a couple of things I said that I, that you said that like really stuck out to me. Um, and that I really appreciate going back to the view of what say like leadership or ministry or like getting a place of authority, you know, changing the way that it looks. And, and I think that with that, there, there becomes a value that you put on every interaction that you have, you know, whether it's giving somebody a high five or a small conversation off to the side, you now have a value because you see the impact that you can have with the moments that you do have, as opposed to wishing that you had someone else's. And, yeah, really good. and I think that there's something that's so valuable in it because like one, one thing that I, I've always thought or come to think is that people have two sets of belief system. One is that you will do whatever it takes to find comfort. So you'll work really hard and you'll do a bunch of stuff to get comfortable or you'll make yourself uncomfortable to have growth and to be dynamic. And, and so basically what I heard you say was I could either sit here and be really frustrated because I'm not comfortable because I'm not in the place where I wish I was of what, you know, it seems to be the one way to be a leader, or I could get uncomfortable and I could make my own way. And one thing we talk a lot about on this podcast is that there's no rules. And thinking about how much of life is truly arbitrary where you're doing something because that's the way it's always been done. Mm -hmm. And like you said, there's a million different ways to do something that hasn't been done before. Hard part is a lot of the times we can't be anything that we haven't seen or heard. Yeah. And so the, the value in, in what you did and how you went about it was you literally were saying, I'll do whatever it takes to make it happen. You know, if that's, if this is what it's got to be, then that's what I got to do. Period. You know, there's no wishing, yeah. there's no whining. There's just like, all right, what line it up for me and I'll execute. That's what I got to do. And hard part about going about life that way is there's countless people who are not going to understand why you're doing that, you know? And that's when you were yeah. talking about the very beginning of like knowing and starting with purpose and identity is because you have realized that at some point, you, you have to stop worrying about what other people think you should be doing and start focusing on what you know you should be doing. And yeah. personally, one of my uh, favorite quotes is the man in the arena. And the reason why I love it is because there's so much value in it in the way that we we engage with the world. Are you coughing over there? Are you okay? Oh, yeah. Should, so, we, should we so be worried? Talking, no. So you guys were talking about trauma for, for hopped on. And uh, I recently discovered that I have um, trauma-induced Tourette's. So life was chaotic enough as a child that I have a permanent tick. 
So anytime passion is what I equated with, basically adrenaline. Anytime my adrenaline increases, uh, so does the clicking, which as a communicator by trade, you can imagine the hurdle that that creates. <laughs> so true. for your listeners, if you're wondering what the click is or the cough or clearing my throat, it's Tourette. So I apologize. Well, we'll take it as, as a compliment <laughs> that we're super passionate about this podcast. We, oh, for sure. We, yeah. we love it. But I think the, the part of that I like about the man in the arena quote is at the beginning when it says it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is okay. marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows the end of triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails where daring greatly, so that his place is not with the poor, timid souls who neither knew victory or defeat. And I think that's, I think that's part of working with working with people, like you said, when it comes to like, say COVID and it's like, say in the church, like, well, what do we do? It's like, well, your, your responsibility, your vision, your focus has to go back to being about people and less about process, you know? And, and I think that that's, yeah. that's the return of the Mac. That was okay. <laughs> I, look, I will say this. So whenever, um, I was, I was working at the church whenever COVID happened and the, quick turnaround that we had because we did have to get out of the idea that church looks like X, Y, and Z, you know, we had to get out of that mindset and we had to get out of it quickly. Um, but I mean, even comparing it to what church looked like back in biblical times, we aren't doing church what they did church. Mm -hmm. It's not the same, mm -hmm. you know? And so it's more of a, like a, what does community look like? What can we create right. to produce community inside of the lives of people? And me specifically, because my department is children, um, I was, I mean, with the exception of maybe one day, um, I was in front of a camera in the most jig, what, like rigged up yeah, kind yeah. of a situation. That's your favorite. I, it, it was so. You love the cameras. I, here's the thing. I don't. Here's the thing. Like, <laughs> I, I had been recording some videos. Um, actually, no, I don't think I was. I don't think beforehand, I don't think we had a YouTube following. We weren't doing mm -hmm. those things. That was something that was created so that the kids can, can, can continue to be engaged. And so I would go live on YouTube every single day, talk to the kids, engage with them. I would email things out to parents so that the kids had some kind of an activity to do. Something that helped them focus. Well, he was out here grinding. Let's go. Let me tell you something. He's working it harder was... during that time than he was during the regular days. Mm, no. Um, <laughs> but, it, but the thing is that it required a completely different skill set from mm, me. Facts. And in an area that I was unfamiliar with. Now, if you ask me, said, hey, you're going to need to go live on YouTube for 30 minutes. Here's a singular topic to talk about. What are you going to do? Here's a, I'm not intimidated by that idea now. I can do it. I can get up in front of a camera, say what I need to say, and engage and stay in an engaging fashion, uh, but on a level with children. The fact of the matter is, is that unfortunately, a lot of individuals, kind of like you, you were saying, Taylor, is that there is no room for, for and I'm going to say the word growth. There's no room for growth or change 
in the idea that times are different, so the way we do things need to be different. Um, but that was one of the biggest things that I learned in that situation is that you you have to be ready to change. If, you're, if your goal is still to reach people, you need to find out a way to reach them and not make them come reach you. Yes. You know? Yeah. It, yeah. You shouldn't, it shouldn't be a forcing to pull people into your four walls for you to make an impact. If you have a way to reach them, then you need to find a way to reach them and not make them come to you. Right. Yeah, there's a there's like a, a phrase that we say <laughs> at the church that I'm from, and uh, it's we should always choose ca- calling over comfort. And so for us, that kind of like came alive during the pandemic because we realized basically everything we knew, we had no idea like if that would ever even happen again. Like people kept using the phrase just waiting to go back from to normal. And it was just absolutely getting in the way of growth. It's like, okay, but we don't know when normal will happen or if it will ever even happen again. So we just sit here waiting around for people to wake up and want to go back to normal. That, that may not even happen. And so we kept doing things that made all of us super uncomfortable. So like our church, for example, just to give you like a practical moment, mm-hmm. our church was what we called a network church. And so basically we came out of life church and, uh, so what we did was is we would play Craig Rochelle on our screens. So that, I mean, for the first four years of me being at the Brick Church, that's what we did. <clears throat> so we had Craig on screen, he preached, and then we did everything in between. Uh, and that was great for us for a season. I mean, it really did allow us to, like, develop leaders at a totally different rate because we weren't prepping, um, you know, to preach a 40, 45-minute message every week. But um, so when the pandemic hit, it was like, wait, what? What do we have to offer? you know, what makes us us? Like, cause it's always been Craig. So we're, we're going to put a, we're going to like stream Craig on Facebook. Well, they just go to live church and watch Craig. Cause we also had, you know, almost 500 people at the time that we knew God had called us to love. Right. So then the question for us becomes, what do we do? Do we just tell them, Hey guys, check out live church online. And then hopefully that will work until we come back open or do we create something new? And so we were having all of these different conversations about what, who, how do we reach our people? Because obviously we have a community we're called to. Um, and so that's where the phrase came, well, we're going to choose comfort or we're going to choose calling over comfort. Because all of our questions initially were, how do we get people back inside? And it's like, no, we have to change now because we've got to do things different. And so our lead pastor started communicating. And so we started shooting videos and doing all kinds of stuff. We did like a live at five, uh, a coffee with the pastor at five or something like that. And so we did live Q and A's and let people ask us everything about why does the church exist? How do you love God when you lost a family member? And I mean, all of these crazy moments and what it was doing was creating a space to develop community, community like Benjamin said, and it wound up being fantastic for us to the point that when we came back and the pandemic had lessened in our area and the idea of coming to attend church together again was an option well, now we had a whole new conversation. Do we go back? Mm. Do we put Craig back on screen? And like, to be like, this church has always existed. So at that point we had like just celebrated the 10 year anniversary of the brick church being a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and these people had always heard Craig on Sunday. So when we started flattering the idea, well, maybe we don't bring him back. That was crazy. Like that was scary. Right. We didn't know what that looked like. We didn't like, we didn't know what, our lead pastor preaching 12 months was going to be like, Hey, 
man, dusting off some sermons for three months is different than knowing you've got to preach for the next 12. Right, right. Uh, what that was going to mean to the staff, you know, now, wait, what does that mean, you know, as a student pastor now, like I've got to preach every Wednesday. So what does that look like? And all of these, like, I mean, everything changed. And the thing we kept coming back to, well, we're going to choose calling over comfort. Right. And what we knew was, is God had created a space for us to love our people well, and they didn't want to go back. They loved it. Mm. They loved the connection points and what was happening. They loved the heartbeat and the vision. And now we've, like our church is very different today than it was 12 months ago. And I think it's incredible. Like we have totally different kinds of conversations. Like there is definitely a, like a fingerprint of the brick now. Um, and all of that happened and took place in large part because of the decision. We're going to choose calling over comfort. And I think when it comes to growth, at some point you have to decide uh, it's worth it. And I think the, and I think we're honest with ourselves when we don't want to grow. The truth is, is we don't think it's worth it. And like we just like in a ministry context, does loving you at my, at my uncomfort, is that actually worth it? Like we would say it is, yeah, we're going to love the person in front of us when it, like when push comes to shove If me being uncomfortable means loving you well, will I choose that? And I think if you're a person of faith in the conversation specific to ministry, I mean, I don't imagine it was very comfy for Jesus to suffocate on a cross, but he did because loving us was worth it. Like it was worth it to that degree. Uh, and I think as ministers or people in ministry, then the same question should be true for us that regardless of how much it's going to shift or adapt or change us, we've got to be able to choose calling over comfort. And I think the second it shifts and the win or the goal becomes comfort, you cap yourself and eventually you die. And I think that's true, not in ministry only. I think it's true everywhere. I think when the aim is to be comfortable, then there's going to come a moment where the next innovation, the next risk, the next stock you need to bet on, you can't bet on because you want to be comfortable. So you cap yourself at a hundred thousand instead of a million, or you cap yourself at a million instead of a billion. Um, And like whatever that tier goes, I think at the end of the day, if you can always choose calling, then I don't actually think there's a cap. I think there is an untold number of things that you've now put yourself in position to be able to bring to the world. And I believe that everyone has like this beautiful gold inside them. And I think the difference between the people who get to see that thing shine and the people who never dig it up are the people who chose calling over comfort. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think that really goes back to something we were saying before you had hopped on about, kind of how things are either people driven or it's not successful at all. And the thing about calling versus comfort is comfort is only self-serving. However, your calling always includes other people. And so I just absolutely agree. I don't think we need to come for me right now. Like you don't need to address me in my life. I feel like I'm over here sitting in a pew. And I was like, Oh, okay. All right. All right. Taylor. All right. Well, I think, I think there's a, there's a phrase you're called to a people, not a pulpit. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and, and I think something that switched during, you know, the last season that we just went through was I think it was really easy, you know, to be a leader and to be in ministry and be completely removed from people. Right. You know, where you, yeah. f- you forget the needs of people, you forget like the burdens and the trials and the trenches and the wars. And so things become very hypothetical in your right. mind. And, and you forget what it's like to be messy with people and like have mm-hmm. to actually like walk in and go through crazy things with people. 
you know? And so that when, when that ease gets taken away, I think very quickly you find out, you know, what you're really in it for. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of what you described, um, is kind of comes back to a thing that I, I like to talk a lot about is the infinite mindset versus a finite mindset. So we have a lot of these finite mindsets that is finish line driven. And so we yeah. create these finish lines that are completely arbitrary. But the problem is when you get to the finish line, now what? Like if you create yeah, a comfort. Yeah, you're the dog that caught the car. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, and so I think whether it's like you said, a generational thing where, you know, we expect things to always be the way that we we experience them or have them to be, and all of a sudden somebody else comes along and starts asking questions. It gets uncomfortable. It's like, well, my generation, we just didn't ask those questions, mm-hmm. you know. So you shouldn't ask the questions, you know. And so now it becomes a whole different topic because somebody's coming along to make and making us uncomfortable, and we didn't give them permission, mm-hmm. you know. And oh, and I think when you have a finite mindset, it's there is no. There is no finish line. You're playing an infinite game with people that's con- uh, continual. You know, even in a game, you get to the finish line, you, it, the show goes on. You you go back to practice. You know, right. and and so when we and adopt a finite mindset, we are setting ourselves up for for failure because we're putting our stake in the ground and saying I'm done. And nowhere, shape or form, does growth ever say I'm done. Does scripture ever say you get to an age where you're like, all right, now it's the next generation's job. You know, there's, there's no time there. There's, there's more visions. There's no more dreams. There's more growth. There's more reach. There's more wisdom, you know? And I think that when we, the problem that we run into is when we put our stake down, whether it's political affiliations, whether it's mindsets, whether it's opinions, you actually turn off all of the, all of the benefit that you could gain from someone else, from their experiences that you would never have the time in life to have. One of my favorite quotes around it is, in a world of change, learners shall inherit the earth while the learned find themselves per- perfectly suited and prepared for a world that no longer exists. That's really good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, so, so sorry. Uh, no, it's, and just like another point about that is like you could you could continually be a learner and you find yourself in a place or you're surrounded by people who agree with you and so you've come to a place where you feel like you have the right answers and and I think that that's something that you know I would say religious people across all religious beliefs find is that they feel like they've come to the right answer and now it's everyone else's job to basically come in line and and meet me where I'm at because obviously I have the right answer. I have the finished answer. And so that's, I think that's what sets us up for failure. When we engage in, in the world, you know, when it, and it changed from say like a ministry and church setting to like social work, you know, you, you actually have to meet people where they're at with their current mindsets, with their current circumstances. And there's no longer just like this overarching, like I'm up here, I'm going to help you get up to where I am because obviously I have a better understanding of how life is and the answers to go. We actually have to do a deeper work to help ourselves find empathy and understand where other people are coming from because we're constantly learning, you know? And, and for me, my, like one of my pillar beliefs is that everyone has a story worth telling and a lesson worth teaching so no matter who it is whether it's a kid you know or it's an 80 year old they have they have plenty of lessons that they can teach me and they have plenty of stories that i can learn from if i'll just like shut up and listen 
And, and I think that's something that we were terrible at is like listening. We're terrible at listening and we're even worse at like basically just waiting for our time to respond, you know, as opposed to just like sitting Absolutely. in it, adapting to it and just letting somebody share. And I mean, personally, I know that Ben sitting here is probably one of the best people that I know about just like, honestly, to the uncomfortable point of like sitting and listening and like, you can see the wheels turning and you know, he wants to say one thing, but he's like, let me take a second to, to put this out in a different way that might be a little bit more effective. No, no. Let me just say this real quick, because it, while, <laughs> while he is not wrong, while he is not wrong, I have learned deeply that oftentimes my immediate response is how I would talk to myself. The way that I would immediately really respond to somebody and respond to a situation is how I would respond to myself or how I would appreciate someone else responding to me about a situation. That's good. Um, and I've learned that that's not how people work. You know, if I'm, if my goal it's is not? to actually, I don't know, right? It's crazy. If my goal is actually to help someone, then I need to be in a position to communicate in such a way that they are willing to receive it. Um, even if it's in bite-sized manners, even if it's like, Hey, you need to be able to understand steps one through five, but if you don't have a foundation to build those steps, we can't even get there. And so I may be me explaining something like if you have relationship issues, maybe the step that you need to take is not necessarily throwing your entire relationship away, but simply changing your perspective of your relationship. Maybe it's That's understanding good. the responsibility that you part play, the part that you play in the relationship versus looking to put the blame on someone else. Like if you say that you love this person, then if, and it's actually unconditional love, then that means that you need to look at yourself versus looking at someone else, you know? Um, and I've just, no, I've, I've learned, really thank you. I've learned over time that, just because someone doesn't understand or they don't receive the same way that you do does not mean that they're incapable. You just need to find a better way of communicating. Two things on that. One thing I always try to describe you as like a well-written principled book because you, you have a way of giving, giving a response. Like if you, when you're reading a book about like principles, whether it's like life or self-help or self-development, mm -hmm. Like they're providing principles, say the evidence of like the positive and negative sides of like, have you ever thought about this or have you ever seen this in your life? When you forget about the author and you're looking at like a mirror of the principle. Yeah. Right. So they're providing context, but you're not thinking about like, you don't know my life. You know, you, you don't know what's right. I'm sure you have problems. It's, it's you against the principle versus you against the author. Right. And I think that you are very tasteful at taking yourself out where it doesn't come across as like, I'm Ben, I know better than you. I have my life together. Cause you don't. Ooh, uh, uh, no, now hold <laughs> the phone. I, I just play. Oh but, my God. But, but you have a way, you have a way of taking yourself out of the conversation versus me versus you, which is a great, it's actually a super powerful persuasion technique from Chris Voss, which is called buying the problem where it's not you versus me in the problem. You take the problem, put it on the table, and now we can both talk about the problem. So we can both creatively find a solution about said problem as opposed to you combining me with the problem. So I think... I think I th that, sorry. No, go ahead. 
I was going to say, like everything Benjamin said was incredible. And I think what you can hear in the way that he's speaking is that he actually cares about the individual in front of me. And so when I have an actual interest in people, and I think each person has value, has purpose, has intrinsic worth, then I'm willing to dialogue and have the conversation. I think what typically seems to happen in my experience is I think people just get to compassion fatigue. Mm. I'm an eternal optimist. Okay. So I don't want to live in a world where I think everything is a conspiracy theory away from being the Illuminati. Right. So I don't believe that (laughs) I don't believe that the average pastor has ill intent. Right. I think what happens is I think you just get tired. And I think that they don't have healthy boundaries and parameters set up. And what winds up happening is where at once I was willing to dialogue with you can really get time to learn you and find out what your story is and hear about your pain and your history. Cause that's obviously going to inform what advice counsel wisdom I share with you. <clears throat> Instead, we try to just treat people like all I need to do is ask these three questions that tells me everything about you. Mm. And so you'll get, you know, 10 seconds into your life story and I've already got an idea. Oh, I know what this person is. Right. And the problem is, is people are just too complex. No individual can you learn in 10 seconds. Even the most basic, person it's still more complex than that kind of think mm-hmm. what happens is, is we are either not actually interested in them so we just don't really care we say we do but we really don't like we're just not that interested in you or we're tired and so we don't have space anymore to really do the the hard work of going one two three four layers deeper on that and getting to figure out really what you're saying uh and really where you're coming from it's hard to do and you can tell that Benjamin actually cares about the individual and I think if we aren't careful we get fatigued out and we give up which is why I think one of the most important things in the world that kind of goes back to a second ago is like <clears throat> you can't live in an echo chamber because <clears throat> what happens is is when you treat people wrong or you start writing people off well you live in a world where everyone agrees with you then you're never going to see that you better right? preach you're just going to feel like you're right <clears throat> well of course that's I mean, that, that's what those people do. People always, and you start living in like extremes and hyperboles and you start creating these black and white pictures of humanity when they, we've always lived in the gray. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so you live in an echo chamber and you just become the self-filling prophecy. Was that the right move? Well, of course it's the right move because we all think our job is like, our job security is on the line. So you're going to ask people below you, did I make the right call? Well, if you don't live in a world where they can actually speak their truth and how they perceive things, then they're just going to say the same thing as you. Or... You just create, you hire you. And so you don't mm-hmm. actually invite different viewpoints. You don't actually invite different stories. You don't actually invite people who think on their own. You just want a bunch of robots. So and for, then you live in an echo chamber and you never grow. So for <clears> the people <throat> listening at home, both Benjamin and Jeremy made stank faces in agreement to all that Taylor just said. <laughs> um, but I, I, I wanted to pause and rewind back to what you were talking about with people are either tired or... They're kind of assuming yes. they know the person. And I, I think that that just keeps coming back to the calling versus comfort as well because the comfort of assuming that you know the person is you don't have to do the more work. You don't have to you know be patient enough to listen. And then also there's that aspect of being tired as well. In order to make sure you put in proper parameters in place to make sure that your tiredness doesn't bleed into how we care for others. You have to put in the hard work as a leader to put in those systems to make sure 
that again, no one's perfect. You can't calculate away compassion fatigue. People are not scantron test. They are not because people be yeah, scratching yeah, off and good. like doing more than just what's in the bubble. Like we are designed to be outside of the bubble. And so when we are, when we're in these settings and we're trusted with leadership, I mean, RIP mm -hmm. uncle Ben, but like with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> so we, we have to put in the work to be like, okay, I know this won't go perfectly, but I need to have safety nets in place and structures in place so that when someone is facing compassion fatigue, whenever people are tempted to assume what can be that, like that backup to be like, Hey, reminder, this is not what we do here and all that. And doesn't need it, needs to be corrective without being harsh. It needs to be compassionate without missing accountability as a whole. So here's, here's I think the, that's the reason. Sorry. I'm sorry. My bad, bro. No, you're totally fine. <laughs> I, I think the one piece that's missing is that wherever leadership is involved, there's pride involved. I would argue yeah. wherever leadership's involved, people's involved. And therefore that's the challenge versus just pride. For sure. And I think that the, the hard part when pride gets involved, when the purpose is not just calling, but there's actually a, a selfishness in having authority, is that when, when we're not actually caring about people, but we like to be the source, the one who always has the solution, there's a, there's a double standard that comes there. It's like a, it's like a, to a double-edged sword, so to speak. So when we create leaders and pastors and all these people to be the person who ha always has like the revelation, you know, the, the way of beautifully putting something where you're like, oh my God, I never thought of it that way, right? You create them to be the source. So when you create them to be the source, now all these people want to come to you with their problems because you're the one with the answers. Right, so you have the revelation, the the mind changing, the life changing solutions, and so when when that happens, now we get overwhelmed because now all these people want my attention, all these people want me to solve their problems, and so when I get tired, two is now I have all of these. Say if every person comes to me with a a problem or a question, we'll view them as a piece of paper. So now I have stacks of paper on my desk, and I don't actually have the solutions but i like that they come to me for the solution because it makes me feel good right mm -hmm. so one thing that i think that is super valuable to know and i think that ben does this i don't know josh well enough in this capacity but i'm sure he's good at it too Thanks. is that when somebody comes to you with a problem you're not taking on the problem as your own problem you're actually keeping the ball in their court and you're helping them find their problem because when they walk away, you're walking home with a hundred problems. They're walking away with still their own problem and a solution. Yes. I, I will speak to that just for a second. I, it's something that I had to learn for sure. Um, just because you care for people. Yes. When you care for people, you care about their situations. You care about their problems. You care about what they're going through and it can burden you. Um, I think that those who could fall into a place um, of, I'm going to choose the word, people who fall into a place of leadership um, who do love the attention of being able to care for people because of the attention, um, I would say it's probably more narcissism than strictly a pride thing. 
Oh, um, narcissism. I think what? I would. I that's just you know, personal. Leaders are narcissists sometimes. I think that I think that these like a, a pastor, a leadership, a high level executive. I think those positions are like, you know, a honey and fly, a fly to Big honey, time. like where narcissism um, is rampant, you know, but the idea of, you know, being able to manage people well is not necessarily something that people always know. But to speak to the point of, you know, not necessarily picking up those things, um, the way that I've learned to balance it is that if somebody comes to me with a problem, yes, I want to help them, but I know that, again, I can't want the answer more than they want it for themselves is the first thing. But also is that am I, if I am actually helping them, am I challenging them? Am I giving them an action step? Am I... You know, if I don't know the answer, am I willing to do the work to help them find it? Or can I do it together with them? Is it something that I need to send somewhere else? Um, and sometimes just being okay and being humble enough to say, you know what? I don't know the answer. Let me find another way to help. Like if I don't know the answer to something, and this is something that I've told parents all the time, saying I don't know is not a bad thing right. to your but, children. But we've made it to be that. Right. It, if you Now, Taylor, you are a parent. You're the only person here on the phone who is a parent. Um, but having worked with parents, um, I have encouraged them. Like, if you don't know an answer, I told parents, like, don't make something up. Please don't make Absolutely. something up. Because you, your child will go to school, will go to their after, after school. <laughs> they will go to football. They will go to all of these different places. Declaring and decreeing the truth of what their parents have told them. Because why? Their parents are their trusted source. You know, but saying I don't know is not a bad thing. You that is an opportunity for you as an individual, as a leader, as a protector, as a as a confidant to go on a journey with that person and say, you know what? I don't know the answer, but let's find it out together. Or I don't know the answer, but I know someone who does. Like saying I don't know is not a bad thing. So good. But in this time, we've we've, it's a great thing. We've combined saying I don't know in a public setting. To the immediate response to that is, oh, I didn't know I was so much better than you. Mm. Yeah, so, I, so we I, force I, opinions because we would rather force an opinion and feel and try to look as knowledgeable as possible than to look ignorant as if we don't know something that someone else knows. So we've taken like, the ability to try. Not super good. Benjamin Taylor said, so. like, I, I got, I just, I, there's something Benjamin said that, like, is, it's, it's, it's like been the biggest thing that I've been learning the last like 18 months is like we, uh, I think leadership ministry specifically, but I think this is true. Like you said about, you know, fortune 500 CEOs, like it really attracts the worst parts of us mm -hmm. because it seems like life, the, the, like every incredible strength also has an equally balanced weakness. Right. So like, it's kind of the whole, like why Satan exists. Well, for there to be just as, epic and amount of love there had to be the alternative um and so it's like when it comes to ministry it's like the best parts of you the confidence the driven nature of things are great and they can move needles fast but there's also massive weakness on the back side of that if not protected or guarded against you fall into wow. it's kind of like a whole like you know nerd out moment jedi right we, we have both light and dark inside of us mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um which is why in my opinion like a church 
and I think all businesses, it's like all, all contexts where leadership is happening need to be trauma informed mm. because if you're trauma informed, you find out like I'm obviously not perfect. And so this need to be perfect, this need to be the expert at all times is just me compensating for a broken part of my soul. Wow. Kind of never allowed to be healed. Wow. And so I'm up here and I need to be the expert. I need to be this. I need to be these things. And it's like, you're never actually healing the thing that needs healed. <clears throat> and so mm-hmm. like the last 18 months we've had, like we've got this incredible woman. Her name is Chelsea Brown and she's phenomenal. She's an incredible uh, therapist. And she's had like a front row seat to a lot of like our heart. Like she took our whole church and ran like a group counseling session through them. It took us through trauma informed and really just got into the nitty gritty of it all and started exposing for all of us. Like, the areas we're trying to hedge our bet and the broken parts of our souls that we haven't had the conversation to start healing that if we're not careful, we'll wind up perpetuating pain for the other people. Something she says all the time is like, what winds up happening when you don't deal with your trauma is you inevitably become the dagger that you were stabbed with. Ooh. And oh. so we just walk around. Oh, wait, 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 yeah, wait, wait Taylor, Taylor, wait, Taylor, Taylor, up. run that back, run that back. Say that again. Say it slow. Say it again. Let, let everybody hear that. <clears throat> so when you don't treat your trauma, you inevitably become the dagger that you were stabbed with. Wow. And so when you don't heal your soul and you don't do the work of personally processing your crap, what winds up happening is it bleeds into everything you touch. And that's why you can watch generation on top of generation on top of generation make the exact same mistakes over and over and over and over again. And it's because at no point did someone stop to process their pain. They just perpetuate it. And then you don't see that that's happening because it's a slow process and it happens overnight. And the only way kind of to solve this, and I actually think this is an answer for most of the things that we've been talking about today is I think this is why feedback matters. This is why doing life with people that are honest matters. This is why it matters to have people in your life that can disagree with you. Cause you don't have anyone in your life that challenges your faith. That doesn't challenge your ideologies, the way you see the world. Then eventually you get stagnant. And feedback creates space for us to grow together. And so like for our, like all of our messages, we have a feedback session. It's like once a week, whoever's preaching on stage on Sunday invites, we invite the entire church, but there's a specific group of people that we try to get there anytime we can. And they give us feedback. Mm. And it's terrifying. Like it's so, it's still scary, man. Like it's still terrifying. <laughs> right. Cause like I have imposter syndrome big time. So like, I'm like, Y'all about to, this is the moment. This is the moment you found out I really don't belong here. Wow. This is it. This is the spot. Or like, you put all this time trying to prep it. You don't really want to hear that it's bad, but you also do want to hear it. So it's the best thing possible. The best thing it can possibly be. <clears throat> but what we found out was there was a whole group of people that we were never considering when we processed our sermon. And each person had a blind spot. And that's what was incredibly unique about the feedback experience was like some of us spoke to a group better than others. And so then we bring Chelsea in, who's, you know, trauma informed therapist. And she starts helping us see things of like, we've never, like, we've never asked how that's going to make like a woman feel, but she's in the room. She has a voice. She matters. And it's like, oh, snap, how's this going to make that person feel? And you start opening this conversation of like, oh, I've never thought how that would land. 
And I think that is a huge piece to be able to lead effectively is having people that you trust. You know, you do the due diligence of doing life with them. Obviously, you can expose your whole heart, whole life off the gate with somebody. But when you find those people, always having people in your life that have permission to disagree with you, yes. have permission to let you know, I don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. And then we can discourse and we can talk about that. But I think that starts initially with getting trauma informed. I really do. I think that initially starts with, you know what, before I can try and fix anybody else, let me do the hard work of searching my soul. You better before say I can <clears throat> heal anybody else, let me do the hard work of digging into my story, my pain, my hurt and really process through that. And if the church is going to do anything, we have to figure that out. Like in my personal belief, the most important thing the global church has to figure out right now is how to treat their own trauma. Mm. There's a book that I want to write. And I'm not an author by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. It was just good. (laughs) We have goosebumps. That's all. I just want, if you can say that again, I know Benjamin's going to, uh, jump in as well to probably amen you, but say that uh, last line I don't remember which, which, which I missed the it. global I the church. The, one of the number oh, okay. one things the global church needs to do is. I think the number one thing, not one of the, I think the number one thing the global church needs to do is to treat their own trauma is to become trauma informed because every stat we have right now coming out, the pandemic has waged war on people's mental psyche, their emotional psyche and their spiritual psyche. And if we don't know how to process our own trauma, we will never be able to treat the people in front of us, which is the thing we were put on earth to do. Like we were put on earth to love the orphan, the widow, the poor, the broken, the hurting. It's where Jesus spent all of his time. And if we don't treat our own stuff, we will never be able to help people heal. And it just doesn't like, it's just the way it works. And like, I think if, I think the church can, like I said, I'm an eternal optimist. I think we can do it. I do. I think we can fix it. I think we can get to a space where we love people well uh, and we do the work of getting ourselves hooked. Cause I think more so than ever before we we have resources available to us now we, going to therapy. Isn't as crazy as it used to be. It's more readily available. You have YouTube videos, Ted talks. I mean, there's so many resources and ways that we can do the hard work of processing our own pain. But unfortunately the church, it's like the cancer of the church refusing to heal. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's the heart Jesus clearly had. And it's the cancer of the church never heals. And we keep hiding it away, hiding away, and allow it to fester. Uh, and I think the pandemic has exposed us as pastors, as leaders. We've got some stuff we need to work on. Absolutely. And yeah. I have found, as someone who had a ton of stuff he didn't work on, that what that has done over the last 18 months has created a ton of space for empathy. And I feel closer to people than I've ever felt before. I feel more at peace than I've ever felt before. I feel like my marriage is better than it's ever been before. Come my on. kids are set up to win better than they've ever been before. And it was difficult. It was difficult to face off with things you've spent 28 years hiding. That's not a fun process. It hurts. It's painful. It's difficult. And it comes at a cost. But on the back end, it's so worth it. Mm -hmm. And as a leader, it's so worth it because then what you get to do is you get to see how it's setting other people free. You get to see like the work you did wasn't just for you. It's actually allowed you to be yes. the voice of hope you always wanted to be. Yes. Whereas before you were talking on things you didn't know, now you've done the work to learn it. Come on. And so you can actually be the bridge to people's pain That's so, so they can experience hope for the first time. That's so big. <laughs> Taylor, let me just say this real quick. First of all, I want to uh, congratulate you yeah. for, for doing the work, um, especially a person who works with people 
doing the work to make sure that uh, addressing what's going on inside is so important. Uh, because if you're not willing to address it, you could very easily miss it in someone else. You know, um, if you yeah. if you're unfamiliar with the 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 responses that a person would have who's struggling with X, Y, or Z, um, it's easy to also miss it in someone else. So first of all, let me just say that it's absolutely amazing that you're doing that, and congratulations on your growth. Um, also, <laughs> thank you. You know, as having worked in a church um, and having been part of other churches, and then also growing up in the South in the Bible belt itself. Um, I know how protective churches can be to outside perspective and outside right. input. Um, so I, I think it's absolutely amazing that your church is um, open to receiving a perspective that is um, not someone from within. Cause I'm assuming this person does not attend your church regularly. Uh, she did not So for the first eight months she didn't, and she wound up, I guess she wound up falling in love with the way the church responded to her getting to use her gift. Wow. <laughs> so now she attends the church, but for the that's, first while she was processing. That's awesome. Um, I will say personally, yeah, super cool. I, so I had to go through a very similar process um, with myself because emotionally, um, it, well, emotions uh, were not a priority for me uh, because of things yeah. that I'd gone through. He said, no, okay. I did, I did. here, 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 here. <laughs> Emotions, second and third. For me, um, emotions were something that just complicated getting to the end task. Um, and so I was able to um, separate emotions from a problem so that I could address it. Now, that has been something that has become a tool to use, you know, when helping people because I took the time to deal with that. Now, it does not mean that I'm immediately 100%. That means that I have to make choices every single day to be aware of my emotions, to reconnect myself with my emotions. Um, but really what started it is because um, of therapy. I went to a therapy session and um, I was talking to the therapist and he just told me, he said, you know, because um, I started going down a path of what I thought was going to be necessary. And then he shifted gears and he asked me about, uh, at the time, the girl that I was dating. Um, and it, you know, she's married and she's my wife now. But, that was, that was you know, nice right. Uh, yeah, that was a nice crack. I was like, well, Wait. at the time, at, here's the thing. At the time we were just dating and he was like, well, tell me about her. And I started telling him about, about my wife and he, he just stopped me and he was like, you know, that girl loves you. Right. And I was like, well, you know, thank you. And he said, and here's the thing. He said, she would accept you numb just the way that you are right now. But you have to ask yourself, is that what she deserves? And whenever wow. he, yeah, wow. whenever he asked oh, that question, wow. Whenever he asked that question, I was like, "Well, dang, like, no, no, that's <laughs> that, that's not what she deserves. That's not what she deserves." And now I am in relationship with her. I have a covenant with her, and in that, I think that this continues to carry on. Now that is a singular dynamic in my life. But whenever you were talking about community and how important community is, people who you are who are allowed to disagree with you and you are receptive to that one of the things that that um one of my friends told me was that you know your spouse is your mirror they're going to be able to see a perspective of you that you cannot see when i put my back to a mirror i can try to look over my you know look over my shoulder to see what's there but i am not going to get a clear view as i am looking forward my mm -hmm. spouse is that for me she checks me there are times i'm currently shaving my head 
And so whenever I shave my head, I have to go talk to her. And I'm like, hey, did I miss anything in the back? Because why? She has the perspective. That's why community is so important. That's why mm -hmm. it's so important to surround yourself with people who do think differently than you, who do have different perspectives than you, and who do look differently than you. Because, like you're saying, it is a voice that you don't have. It is a perspective that you don't have. And it's a position that you don't have. And by surrounding yourself with people like the three of us at this table, you know, including you here on the phone, we are all different people. Mm -hmm. We've all come yeah. from different backgrounds. We've all lived very different lives. Um, Taylor, did you grow up in Oklahoma? I, uh, for most of my life. Okay. So Oklahoma. Over, I'm officially over half of my life. I've been in Oklahoma officially. Okay. Where were you before Oklahoma? <laughs> if I can ask. Uh, the, so I was, I've been in Oklahoma the last like 18 years and I was in Dallas before that. Okay. So we got so, like grapevine. Oh, okay. So we got oh. Texas and I got Kansas, Louisiana, Kansas and Washington sitting right here. Each of us have all had our own individual experiences um, that have led us to the place that we are, which would literally be all of us, all four of us sitting here on a, on a podcast, <laughs> yeah. you know, communicating. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a, um, a symbiotic relationship here where if someone says something, it's not just written off if right. it's not exactly what I think. It's like, you know what, let me consider that because Joshua should not have to prove his point. I should give him the benefit of the doubt. Why? Because I trust him. He's in community with me. If mm -hmm. he is saying something, there is yeah, value to it. Good. You know, I shouldn't have to be like, okay, we'll back it up with facts. Give me like da 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 da. It should that should not be my default response. My default, my default response was like, if he's saying this, there's probably some value to it. There's probably right. some, some, some depth to this. Let me ask more questions versus making really him good. prove to me right. that this is a value, you know, but, yeah, you know, community, so community is just, just really, really important. And I think that it's something that, um, if we were honest with ourselves, um, is something that really got dampened by the pandemic the ability to be able to be in community mm -hmm. um, definitely hurt us. And so we did have to find ways around it, but community, community, community. I think something that's <clears throat> super important to me is my value for people and not, not just people who can do something for me, but literally all people, uh, big, small people that I know, people that I don't know. And when you're talking about community or what you're just saying, even the people at this podcast that are sitting at the table, I think one of the greatest, like for me, phrases, scriptures that I think it's really important to understand is, is the scripture. If you receive a prophet as a prophet, you receive a prophet's reward. If you receive a righteous man as a righteous man, you receive a righteous man's reward. So therefore the value that you put on someone is going to directly correlate with the value that you get from them. So when it's, say it's uh, from leadership, I'm in, I'm in fitness a lot. So somebody who comes to me, you know, for fitness, they're going to put a value on what I have to say about fitness because they hold me in high regard as somebody who knows more about fitness than them, you know. But when we go into regular life, we, if Ben says something and he's passionate about it or something that he's learned, I'm learning from him because I have a high value for him. And so it can obviously correlate with somebody that you know really well, but I really think that everyone you go
go back to like my core belief is that everyone has a story we're telling and a lesson we're teaching. I really believe that I have something to learn from everybody. So I have a high value for every single person, whether there's somebody who's like in their lowest point on the street or if it's like the president of a country, like I, I hold the same value for for everyone. And so I think we have a massive control over what we receive by the value we put on the person themselves. And so in, in a slightly different vein from when I was just talking about something that you said really stuck out to me about you become, you know, the dagger that you were something with assaulted with or the, whatever the phrase was. You become the dagger you were stabbed with. Yes. So something that kind of registers with me, and this is kind of a, an unpopular mindset is that one, one thought process I can remember even having since I was young was what if like believers, what if people who loved God lived in such a way that even the devil himself wanted to come back to God because life was that good. Like we love people that much and we had that much joy, that much forgiveness, et cetera, et cetera. And so when, I started learning about things with trauma um, from a couple people, you know, at a conference. I read a lot of books. Um, They were talking about people who actually do therapy for the people causing, say, violence. So somebody who says, say, it's a serial killer or say it's a, uh, a terrorist or somebody that's abusive. So the, the problem is a lot of the times we look at, the dagger and we attach that to the person, but we don't actually affect or we don't actually target the pain that the person causing the violence has. Mm. So we like to demonize. We like to hold our justice parade about the price that that person should pay for what they do, that they should go rot somewhere in a cell, but we don't actually look into the pain that caused that person into action. So a lot of times before we get to action, things start with an idea An idea creates an emotion and emotion creates action. So like you said, when we don't deal with trauma, you know, we become the dagger. But the problem is, is that we never actually going back. There's a responsibility that when you were stabbed, we don't actually talk to the next generation about our own experiences because we hold it under the vise of we want to protect them from what happened to me. So I don't tell them about the trauma or the realities of life. And so when we don't do that, we basically destine the next generation to experience or go through the hard things that we had to learn again. And and so I think that there's something super valuable about being able to have real conversations with not just like our kids or or the people that we are are leading is giving them a proper expectation of what life looks like and giving them the tools to be able to walk through it. Because if we just ignore things, they're obviously not going to be served, and they're obviously not going to come to a a positive conclusion. And so the problem is we, I think we are surprised when the people around us go through tough things, or, you know, say the parents of of kids who do atrocious acts are are like, see, we, we knew that, you know, they were having a hard time, we just didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's that's part of the struggle that we all go through is that instead of we like we 
relinquish ourselves to doing things after the fact as opposed to being preemptive and owning the battle and going after, you know, what's not like a sexy job is like having empathy for the person who causes the problem. But it's the only way to to create a different pathway forwards. You know, otherwise we all kind of go back to our trenches and we put our stakes back in and we have this like flex off about why someone else is the problem. And, you know, we get in in a super defense mode. And so I I just think that, I mean, it's, it's not popular and it's not easy to try to have empathy for someone who is making a tangible intentional choice to hurt someone else is to actually go towards that. Like there's people who like run into the fire and there's people who like feel the heat and run away. And and I think that that's one of the hard things to instill and hard things to try to develop are people who enjoy running into the fire to help as opposed to running away. You mean like a social worker? Precisely. Well, well. <laughs> uh, the only reason I bring that up um, is because like one of the things in our training is definitely the whole trying to make sure we go into situations asking the question, what happened to you rather than what did you do or like what's wrong with you? Um, but honestly, again, I just watched Encanto and I'm super into, <laughs> like, oh my goodness. But uh, it, it's funny because uh, my siblings like, oh, we have to watch Encanto and I hadn't seen it. I literally have no idea what you're talking about. Encanto we'll just listen. is a recent uh, Disney movie, Disney Pixar, phenomenal. That's incredible. incredible. Taylor, how many, you have children. How many times have you watched it? Oh man, it's it's the movie. So I, I mean, I really don't think I'm exaggerating to say I've seen it fifty times. And what's your favorite song? Oh, it ain't even close. It's uh oh, what's the name of it? Pressure. Mm, me too. <laughs> me too. That's why we're friends. But it's like uh, a whole story. Yeah, isn't it? I resonate with that movie in a really profound way. I did a whole podcast on it because of how much it. I love that movie. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. And. Ironically, the point of bringing it up has nothing to do with Encanto. It oh. is actually <laughs> it is actually the short that plays right before Encanto. And so I, if you just watch it on Disney+, Plus, you may not have seen the short, but it's, uh, it's a short called Far From the Tree, I believe. And it precisely, it precisely goes on to the, that same point of We Become the Dagger. And not to, like, spoil it, but it's, like, seven minutes. So I'm sorry if I spoiled the seven-minute experience for you. But it is this, like, this raccoon and a younger raccoon. And the raccoon's like, hey, don't follow me. I'm going to go get her food. The young raccoon does not listen. Um, and what happens is it just kind of goes on to where the older raccoon has a scar on his face. And it's kind of prevalent, but you don't really notice it until the big raccoon rescues the smaller raccoon. And so then, you know, time travel. Now that small raccoon is now a big raccoon or the small raccoon. And it, and it plays out exactly the same. But then that once small but now large raccoon realizes, oh, shoot, I'm about to duplicate the trauma that I had. And so you see that raccoon take a different path and teach the, younger, the youngest of raccoons like, hey, this is why I'm telling you the way this has happened so you don't feel the same thing. And one of the most touching parts is that the young raccoon, the middle raccoon, if you will, ha- got scars from not listening to the oldest raccoon. And so the youngest raccoon wants to touch the scars. And at first, the middle raccoon's like, whoa, 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 back up. You know, just like, hey, this is my pain, whatever. And then realizes in order for 
need to protect this youngest raccoon. I need to be vulnerable enough to where they can touch my scars and learn and all that. And it's just one of those like, oh, my goodness, that was good. The best seven minutes of my last 48 hours. <laughs> so all of that to say that we are responsible to share and educate those around us and those who are that we have a sphere of influence, mm-hmm. you know, over their lives or in their lives um, so that we can equip them, you know, with the knowledge to, to help and to hopefully give them the tools to not repeat the same things that we have gone through. Well, saying like something that Taylor had said earlier is that we have done a bad job of teaching people what to think as opposed to how. So we give people a, a list of information, but we don't tell them how to apply it or how to walk into a situation and and take on the temperature of the room and know how to maneuver. You know, we'd rather have a bunch of yes men, you know, who just do what they're told. And so the problem is, is that when we when we're talking about things that have happened, it's easy for us to just say, don't go over there mm-hmm. than it is for us to tell them how to go through it properly, you know? So it's either for us to say, don't go by the stove rather than have them have their hands slightly over the stove. Okay. That's hot. You know? So we use this for cooking, but we don't use this for touching, you know? Yeah. And so when we, the problem is, is that takes time and we don't like to spend time. You know, we'd rather have somebody, you know, have, a momentary situation where they just listen to us one time and we keep it simple and we keep it pushing than to really help somebody fully understand what we're asking of them and why. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's, I think that's so huge, whether it, across any platform, you know, that's why you have a lot of people who are in these businesses. They've been for 40 years. You can't really afford to, to let them go because they hold all of the knowledge of how to operate that business right. You know, so you hold them on not because they're a crazy value add to the company, but because they have all the knowledge that no one else has, you know. And so but we well, we don't apply that, you know, to things, whether it, it across any platform, whether it's in service or it's in fitness, you know, and in my platform, when it comes to, to fitness, it's like, what if I just told somebody one time how to how to operate a, an exercise, but I didn't tell them why or what they're supposed to feel or what that's supposed to stretch. It's like, just do it. Just do it because you're, t- um, you're t- I'm telling you to, you know? And that just doesn't work in a way where you want someone to be self-sufficient. It's kind of like a chiropractor or a, a massage therapist. It's like your goal is that they don't need to come back to you, not that they need to come back to you consistently, you know? Yeah, Which you're trying is, to work yourself out of a job. Exactly. You know, but the problem is, is that like going back to it, our pride gets involved, our money gets involved, where we want them to consistently come back because it makes us feel good. So we, we give them just enough to feel a little bit empowered for the moment, but not empowered enough that they don't need us anymore. Mm. And so yeah, I think, well, <clears throat> sorry, no, go ahead. So I, I, I love that, like the concept of relationships and community and sharing like shared experiences keeps popping up. It reminds me of a quote from Dr. Chan Hellman, who's kind of like the hope guru. Mm-hmm. Um, like he's turned hope into a study, and he says that hope isn't born in any. Excuse me, hope isn't born in anyone individually. 
but it is born in community inside of relationships. <clears throat> and like, that's kind of a clunky quote, but like what he's saying is, is you don't know that things can be better until you see it. You don't know that healing is an option until you hear it. And what winds up happening is we don't always share our stories because we are reminded of the pains of the past. And so we, we, we don't really fully open our hearts to people, but it's in those moments that like healing really takes place because like it, it doesn't take very long before you sit in a group of people. And if someone gets vulnerable, you can feel like it's different. The room changes, it shifts a little bit. Um, and when hope is bred in relationships, what you're doing is you're allowing your story to tell somebody else, Hey, me too. And it's incredibly powerful because I think the whole point of like, take it to scripture a second. I think the whole point of Jesus weeping is so he could look people in the face and say, me too. Yes. Like I think all of, I think the whole incarnation, God coming to earth as a person is so that he could come to you every single moment you had pain. He could say, me too. I get it. I understand it. I hear you. I feel you. Mm. And we have a God who isn't distant from our pain, but is well acquainted with it. And so we serve a God who, when he looks at our pain, doesn't just hear it, but he says, me too. And when you can get some people in your life that when they look at your pain and your struggle and your trauma and they can say, me too, it gives you life because like it's for the first time ever, you find out like there's another option. I don't have to be my mom. I can be something different. I don't have to wear the pains of my father. I can be someone different. I don't have to raise my kids the same way I was raised. I can be different, but you don't know that. Yes. until you see it and what winds up happening is we don't share our story because we think it's saving people but it's not yes because if you were able to be vulnerable and expose your heart a little bit someone else would find out that they're not alone in this world that there's someone else out there who's felt something similar experienced something similar but the difference is, is they got out of it they came through it they're still standing and when you create space to get to share your stories with people and your experiences mm-hmm. the way you see the world where you've come from it creates these little pockets of hope and hope sets you free. The moment you feel like I have the ability today to take an action that can change my future tomorrow, everything changes. My life was completely shifted. The first time I believed I had responsibility and the ability to control my own life. When I realized I wasn't just a victim of my circumstances, but I could do something today that could change something. Right. That's the issue with the victim mentality in my experience is spending most of my life in it. You have abdicated control of your own future. Mm. When I'm a victim, I am subject to everything someone else does. But yes. when I can find the small piece or the big piece that I can own, then I can change anything. And I think it's comfortable to stay in that victim mentality and so we don't do the healing. Or when we do the healing, we're scared that, okay, well, I feel a little bit better now, but what if someone else hurts me again? And I think relationships are scary and community is scary, but when it's done well and when you take the steps, it's been my experience far more often than not, you will find people that resonate with your story. And I think God is actively looking to put the people who can bring life to our story. I don't think if I'm going into trying to find healthy relationships that it will be that crazy to find. I think they're there. I just think the question is, are we willing to expose our heart? Are we willing to be vulnerable again? We're willing to have a conversation again. But when we do that, you see hope. And as a student pastor, I get to see it every week. I get to see these little pockets, these small groups that we do every week. And I'm watching leaders allow the raccoons to touch their scar. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching hope get born. 
from watching kids believe maybe for the first time ever that college might be an option for them. I'm watching kids believe for the first time ever, maybe I can be a good dad. I'm watching people believe for the first time ever, maybe people do care about me. And that's what community can do for you. That's what it can breathe. It's what it can breathe. And so I love that Benjamin said, like we have a responsibility to influence and share our story in the, the sphere of influences that we have, because what seems normal to you might be the very thing that sets somebody else free. And I don't think our job is to try to filter what we think is or isn't the best part of our story. I think our job is to live open and free and allow God to use those spaces, those moments. You have a story and it matters. And if you just tell it, it's going to do the thing God wanted it to do. Taylor, you are a wealth of knowledge. Thank you. <laughs> you you laugh, but I mean, like, it's just, it's, it's wisdom and it's life experience and it's just all of it. Just it. And a willingness to share it, right, is such a such a beautiful and genuine thing. Yes, I think it comes down to, <clears throat> at some point, you have to make the decision, and have the courage to go first. Yes, because I that's think so good. that's what holds us, a lot of us back, and it holds all of us back at some point. Is that we're waiting, <laughs> we're waiting for someone to go first, and at some point, like you have to want change, growth an adjustment to your family's legacy, a change in the trajectory of, of your path bad enough where you basically have a little bit of effort in your system. We are like, whether somebody goes with me or not, like I'm going because I'm going to do whatever it takes. And the crazy thing about that is when you, when you're have the courage to take the step, not only are you breaking barriers in your own life, but you're breaking barriers for every person around you, whether they say it or not, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your kids, whether it's your coworkers. One thing that I have a firm belief in is that you can invite somebody into a completely better life by the way that you live yours without saying a word. Mm. And, and I think that's something that's super undervalued. You don't always have to carry your resume around with you. Make the change. You don't, nobody needs to see you make the change. It will be self-evident, but you have to be willing to take the step first. But that being said, that's why we have off the leash is we just really believe in putting the pride back and doing the hard work and getting trenches, getting in the trenches with people, not always having all the solutions and having all the answers and the three quick, easy steps, but saying that we're willing to figure it out together. But we're going to wrap this thing up. I just want to say I appreciate all three of you because you guys are ridiculously deep in the knowledge and wisdom. And I'm genuinely thankful that I have all three of you guys in my life, Taylor, for the last three hours, uh, <laughs> coming out swinging. I'm not going. I'm not going to lie. That's probably the best entry of anybody into my life of all time. If this was a job interview, you're hired, max salary, ready to go on Monday. We'll take it. But without further ado, my friends, until next time, you know what to do. Save the leash.